scintillating because it today's podcast is going to be like tony khan's booking we're going to start something we have no idea what it's going to end up looking like but before we do that let me explain that the great brian last is off today at least for the first part of the program which we are recording on a saturday the saturday of aew full gear before the pay-per-view Brian's off the first half of the show. I am going, I'm strongly urging him to take both halves off, but he's dedicated to his profession and he loves doing this. But as everybody knows, uh, over the past couple months, we've been making fun of it here on the show. The problems I've had with noise and et cetera, with the remodeling at Castle Cornet and, you know, various shows that we have done in pieces. And some people have noted that there's been clips or shows out a couple of days late here and there. We've changed the schedule. And uh, a lot of people remember that Brian took a show off and horrified the podcasting world here a couple months ago. On an ongoing basis, he's had demands on his time dealing with a, a family situation. And so that's why we're, I have urged him to take more time and do that. And we're going to, uh, soldier on as best we can today on this program but i just want to say for anybody that's been oh you guys come on you're late or whatever i think it's no shock to anybody that i don't handle handle any of the technical part of this empire and yes there are minions at arcadian vanguard including Jay Sharknado and the infamous Kippelman and the gentleman I'm about to introduce and some other people, but that they do a lot of work on these programs. But Brian Last oversees everything and does a lot of it himself because he is dedicated. And he loves what he does. And I got to be honest with everybody at the top of the program. If I had been in his place over the last couple of months, I would have said to y'all, hey, I'll see you in a few months. And that would have been all you'd have heard of my big fat white ass. But having said that, Brian, we love you and we can't do without you. But for a little while today, we're going to try. And to join me in doing this, uh, another Brian, ladies and gentlemen, he is a, a published author, a broadcaster, a historian, a raconteur an all-around town gadabout, and the news director of the Wrestling News, ladies and gentlemen, Brian Solomon, stepping into the hot seat, Brian. Wow, thank you. That's a great introduction, Jim. I'm I'm glad to be here. I'm, I'm honored to be able to step in. I'm ready to be vilified on social media after this is posted. <laughs> um, like you said, another Brian. You know, we're trying to keep it simple. Not another, not a new name to remember. Um, another person from the New York, New Jersey area, which seems to be your, your cross to bear in podcasting. Well, I can't get uh, away from you. Right, you can't get away from us obnoxious New York people. It's just impossible. 
Well, but also, but now here's the thing. It may be easier for me because I can just say Brian, 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 and I don't have to slip and forget your name or anything like so many people do, including your wife during sex. But nevertheless. How did you hear about that? Um, well, I was listening at the window, but ah. nevertheless, it, it might be confusing and or off-putting to some of the listeners if I'm talking to Brian and they didn't catch the first part of the program, or maybe it's on YouTube. I might have to remind them a few times during the program, or maybe instead of, you know, they, they'll think, well, that doesn't sound like Brian. He's got a cold or he had a sex change operation or something, but maybe out of it, you know, Brian Solomon, that, that brings to mind the infamous Solomon Grundy. Yeah. Or maybe. you could just call me Solomon if you want. Well, that maybe works. I ought to call you Grundy. I'll take that. Grundy. Grundy, you big fat piece of shit. We bring you in here. We bring guys in to get you over. And what do you do? You dumb yourself right out of position. Or you if could call. If Dusty was booking you in the Mid-Atlantic territory, you would be uh, on the on the little handwritten uh, match running sheets that he would tape up to the locker room wall. You'd be Solomon Grundy. Well, I guess I could live with that. I I, I prefer King Solomon though, but you know. Whatever works. Do you still have all those people working down in the mines? Yeah, all the time. Absolutely. I'm cutting babies in half, the whole the whole nine yards, everything, all of it. Well, let me ask you this. When you cut a baby in half, is it better to go like across the midsection or lengthways? Lengthways, you get an equal distribution of the appendages and everything, but it seems like it'd be a cleaner cut to go right down across the waistline. Yeah, it's kind of, I guess, how you do it with a fish, you know, like to, how you'd fillet a fish. Boy, we're, this is off to a wonderful start. Well, wait a minute. Does that mean that, that if it's a, like a fillet of fish, the baby only has like a half a piece of cheese on top of it instead of the entire slice of cheese? Yes, and the worst part is the baby looks nothing like it does in the picture um, on the menu when you order it. Well, that's, you know, and, and that's something that they really can't control, I guess. With the, no. You know, because they've outlawed the cloning. So you can't really make exact duplicates anymore. You got to just go do the best you can. Some of them are going to be short a chromosome here and there, like this program. But I'll tell you, and let me just at the top of the program now, again, we said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to state this premise again. Maybe I didn't state it yet on tape. Well, you and I were talking. Right. We I try to avoid you, but normally, but in this case, we had to. Exchange some fucking interaction. But what we're doing today on this special edition of the experience, I got a couple things I want to talk about top of the program, and then we're going to review in not excruciating detail, but from a first-person perspective, for once, the go-home television program for the big AEW pay-per-view, the Dynamite, from this past Wednesday, because Brian Solomon, you were there, Solomon Grundy. Solomon Grande, you were there and saw with your own horrified eyes as well as exposed your small child. I know, to I this know. Debacle. Yeah, we were there. I mean, somebody had to be there. We were there, just me. <laughs> Apparently, most <laughs> of the people in fucking Connecticut didn't feel that way from what pictures I saw of the arena. Was that Bridgeport? Yes, it was Bridgeport, what they now call the Total Mortgage Arena. It used to be Arena at Harbor Yard. Total, if it had been 25 years ago when I lived up there, they'd called it the Total Murder Arena. <laughs> Wasn't it Bridgeport that they went to to shoot that raw open for the Attitude Era where they had the boarded up buildings and the chain link fences with the wild 
stray pit bulls snarling about? I think that might have been in Brooklyn, actually. If I no, if no, 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 no. There was a place in Connecticut that they, when they needed, um, when the studio needed during that Attitude Era period, when everybody had to look like they lived under a fucking bridge, and you needed just like a slum area or the fucking dangerous looking place, there was some town I thought is Bridgeport, right, very near in between where I lived and the office in Stamford. Yeah, well, I mean, if you are looking for a just a pit of a place and a desolate, frightening area to film, you can do a lot worse than Bridgeport. So I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if that's where they went. I do remember the. Do you remember the Domino Sugar Factory in Brooklyn where they used to shoot like um they shot the D uh, DX did a video there or something. They used to use it a lot. It was this really desolate, abandoned factory. In okay, I've, I've seen the results on tape, but thankfully yes. I was never along on any of those. Well, I was. Sounds like a lovely place. I got to meet Run DMC once for doing one of those, so that was nice. What, they were just hanging out in an empty factory? <laughs> yeah, they just happened to be walking by. Just happened to be no. walking by when you... <laughs> they were doing a music video with uh, DX or something like that. Oh, good. Why Run DMC, DX, nobody can use their own goddamn Christian names anymore. It's all got to be initials. I'll Let me tell you how you can spell things out for people. Brian, have you heard about this? It's happening right now as, as you and I are speaking, not when the people are hearing this, but as you and I are speaking, and I'm, I'm just biting my nails on pins and needles about it, the official lazy booking t-shirt has gone on sale at jimcornette.com and we don't know whether it's going to be feast or famine we never know about these things so they you know the initial supply may be snatched up in a heartbeat we don't know but we're going to try to keep these bad boys on sale we may be reordering any moment now but if you go to jimcornette.com the official lazy booking shirt just in time for christmas and if you want it by Christmas, with the demand, make sure you place your order. By the by, the end of Thanksgiving, we're giving you Black Friday, Black Saturday, and Black Sunday. We're giving the whole weekend is going to be as dark as blacker than a banker's heart. That's how dark it's going to be. And so if you order it by then, we believe we can get them to you by Christmas and before they sell out. And also... As you will recall, the I'm a Jim Cornette guy t-shirts are being phased out. So when this existing supply is sold out and we're running pretty low on a few sizes, they will not be restocked. So jump on that while you get the chance. It's all about Christmas. And don't forget the Santa Corny action figure. I'm not even going to plug the raw variant because we're slow now that I don't want to encourage violence in the streets, but the Santa Corny action figure variant can still arrive at least domestically in the contiguous 48 states and Alaska and Hawaii. And we count you down there too, Puerto Rico, even if the Republicans don't. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, the Santa Corny can get to you by Christmas if you pull the trigger on that purchase right now at jimcornette.com. Um, Brian, you're, an, you're a... I know it's hard for people to believe that have never met you and they know what kind of crowd you associate with here at the experience and the cornet shows and the arcadian vanguard but you're a responsible reasonable adult i think so i mean i've been called that not by 
anybody in your immediate social circle, but people <laughs> at first glance, when you walk down the street, you think, well, yeah, I guess he's a responsible guy. I have everyone fooled. That's really what it is. But I know that I sometimes tend to attract controversy, possibly even no, no. cause feelings to be inflamed and illicit uh, blowback responses from the social media crowd, etc. I I know that sometimes you know they just they take me the wrong way. I'm I'm usually such a such a, a demure fella, and I don't like to just come out and knock people. Never. But you've seen the controversy. You've heard about it, or seen it one or the other with Scotty Too Hotty. Everybody remembers Scott Garland is his name, and I'm not reading his FBI file because everybody knows his Twitter handle was at the Scott Garland. But Scotty Too Hotty was a WWF superstar back during the Attitude Era. He and Brian Christopher were too cool. Um, and Rikishi later on was in that group. Scotty has had a long career. He started out in the independence up in the Northeast. He's from Maine, I think, my God, originally. Um, and then after that, he worked steadily until a few years ago. I mean, he slowed down as we all have by choice, but he's worked independence for years and always been a well thought of guy in the locker room. I can tell you nicer guy. You couldn't find no bad habits. Doesn't, you know, uh, fuck with people is never gets in trouble is always a pleasant person. And I believe I can't quote you chapter and verse on his, you know, a personal life right now, but I believe I've heard in the past that he has successfully transitioned to other fields of endeavor in his full-time private life besides wrestling that now he does that on occasion. Uh, I, so the point is he's a, 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 and he's a family guy. Lucky there's a family guy. And he doesn't even look like Peter Griffin, but he's he's not from Quahog either. I don't think the, so. The point I'm making is, is that here's a guy that has never been a lightning rod of controversy and doesn't go out of his way to knock or disrespect anybody, but he sent a tweet out that I thought if you're going to express an opinion on Twitter is probably the most non-inflammable or non-flammable what is, is it flammable or inflammable it's it shouldn't piss anybody off about as much as any tweet that you could possibly send out expressing an opinion and you've right. seen this brian and i'm, I'm yes. going to read it out loud and i want you to give as a level-headed adult human being <laughs> your reaction and or whether you believe that people should have goddamn because the the bottom line of this whole thing where i'm going is People had such a mental breakdown over this one tweet that they hounded poor Scotty Too Hottie off of Twitter to where he just said, well, fuck, it's not worth dealing with this shit and deleted his shit. And here is how he fucking said such inflammatory things. Dear promoters, I do not fight, in quotation marks, women. I'm 49 and have a 20-year-old daughter. Hurting, in quotation marks, women isn't appealing to me. 
I understand that there are men that do it these days. It's just not my thing. If that makes me older out of touch, I'll take it. Please stop trying to book it. Simple so as that. Yeah, apparently he has had some of these, it, I used the words of Dennis Condry one time, some of these so-called promoters that the best thing they can figure out for a guy that's worked in the WWE and been seen during the Attitude Era by more people than most everybody else these days and you're going to bring in as a special attraction should wrestle a woman. Brian Solomon, your thoughts, and then I'll piss the rest of everybody off. Right, because you did have a very measured response, I think, to to what he had to say. But you know what it is? It's the Twitter effect. That's that's what I like to call it. Because I, I mean, I did not find anything inflammatory. I think that's the word you were looking for about what Scotty said. I, I found it to be, you know, not everybody shares that opinion. He's perfectly entitled to it. He he did it in a very respectful way. And I think it's one of those things where when you because I've had this happen to me where you get a thought or an opinion in your head and you think better maybe of sharing it on Twitter because you're just imagining the kind of exhausting response you're going to get. I think, you know, I don't know if you, Jim, have that problem. I think I don't have not. that problem. But <laughs> I generally tweet exactly what I think. And if anybody disagrees with me, I fucking block them. But I've had it happen where I've had a thought pop into my head, even on this topic, as a matter of fact. And I thought, you know what? I I just I have a lot to do today and I don't think I could deal with the responses <laughs> I'm going to be getting to this. So I just keep it to myself. I mean, I, I you know, I, I tend to and this is where I'm going to drop, like I told you, about a thousand Twitter followers because I didn't tweet about it. But I tend to sort of agree with him. You know, I, I see where he's coming from. I, I see where you're coming from. You know, it's it's partly I think I, I agree with both of you. It's partly the visual. I, I find the the visual really bothers me, although I think, you know, once in a while it could work. Like, I think it worked with China. I think it could potentially work with somebody like a Rhea Ripley if done sparingly. But generally, it, it's it's a visual that's really weird, like having, you know, uh, somebody like Tessa Blanchard bumping for or rather Brian Cage bumping and selling for Tessa Blanchard and impact, which is just insane. And then it's also because it takes you out of the match. I mean, you know, I think even if, even if people don't agree with that opinion, I think it's a valid opinion. And sometimes when I share that and I say, Oh, you know, a, a, a woman wrestling a man, it kind of takes me out of it. People will say, well, what about when they have, you know, a, a tiny little cruiserweight wrestling a heavyweight? I mean, everybody's okay with that. And I go, well, not everybody's okay with that. I think that looks pretty weird too. And, and it takes me out of it again, unless it's done sparingly because it emphasizes the unreality of what you're watching. Cause, cause here's the deal yes. that they would never book a, an intergender boxing match. Never. They would never book an intergender MMA match because it's real. <laughs> They're going to kill yes. each other. Now you watch it and you're watching an intergender wrestling match. Now that's something that people would book. And what's the reason for that? The reason for that is they're not actually fighting each other. So that is the thought that's in my head while I'm watching it. And even though I know they're not fighting each other, I like to sort of suspend my disbelief and it makes it hard to do that. That's all. Yeah. And that's exactly the part of the problem in order to 
satisfy the modern generation of pro wrestlers fascination on everyone getting to be equal as performers, they are telling everyone that they are performing, which makes everybody look even worse. Then you have the distasteful aspect of, okay, how far do you take? I mean, the garbage wrestlers and the deathmatch crowd they have actual they have women in these death matches and you know again i thought the guys were walking fucking bloodborne infections i can't imagine the the women but you in any kind of legitimate business or much less a mainstream promotion or anything like the wwe even if you do intergender combat you have to draw the line somewhere or somebody's going to run you out of business and you're going to be if you're doing it you're a niche product to begin with but that's the problem is because they think well we're going to show everybody that the women are equal as performers of course they are you stupid fucks <laughs> of course they are you stupid they as performers but not as fighters and again, you get the the Ronda Rousey argument. Well, Ronda Rousey could kick your ass. Yes, of course you could. And also, I put Baby Doll over, and she wasn't Ronda Rousey. But that's the pecking order in wrestling. The manager can put the fucking girl over because when everybody before everybody in the world lost their minds, it was a goddamn insult if a guy got beat in a fight of any kind by a girl. And so that's the idea. But when you're talking about people that are purported to be, whether they are or not, in real life is not in question, with it, where they are purported to be trained professional athletes, professional wrestlers, professional whatever, then I'm sorry. The fucking guy's going to beat the girl. And that's not my opinion. That's biology, anatomy physiognomy and science right well i mean i like i said it sparingly i think it could potentially work like when you had china beating up these guys for the most hey, part don't, no don't don't put the finger on me not when you had when they had oh <laughs> china I, I didn't mean you well as i mean you. some people would take it you know right? literally but when, you know i understand again but here's the thing but it looked okay to me i didn't mind it as much I wouldn't mind it if if if, if you have Rhea Ripley, I don't know, I can't think of a, but like, a, I don't know, wrestling Ricochet, let's say, I could completely buy that she could beat him. You, you know what I mean? Well, but, but, and 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 I and I would too. And that's that's, that's another that's another problem we've got is that there are men wrestlers now small enough that a good sized female wrestler it looks visually like they could whip, but we'll litigate that another time. But then you go into the what I was getting into before where's the limit okay you could have a strictly scientific wrestling match with rhea ripley versus ricochet and i'm not talking about modern scientific wrestling where they consider the hurricane rana part of the science i'm talking about if you had them wrestle and nobody's punching and nobody's striking and nobody's kicking a wrestling match you might could get away with having that on wwe television if you built it right Yes. And 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 violate their man on 
woman violence rule because then it would be a straight athletic contest. But the first time that Ricochet balls his fist up and punches Rhea Ripley in the face, they're going to lose 25% of their sponsors. Well, that might fly in fucking AEW because they can say, go fuck yourself and pussy and I don't know, fucking nun in the ear, whatever they say on TBS. I, I don't know if they, I've, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody say. I think I heard one of them say, I'm going to go okay. fucking nun in the ear. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I mean, I've. Going to the break. Somebody may have missed it. Yeah. Well, but they I, might get away with that on AEW on TBS. But then, okay, well, we got away with the guy punching the girl in the face. Well, what about if we get away with, and then they're going to fucking get juice or do an, and they've already got juice with the girls on TBS. But I'm talking about a guy getting it on a girl. Then they get lose uh, some of their sponsors or get kicked off TV, whatever the case. Where is the line? And is it a movable line depending on? The platform you have, let's say the impact is completely invisible. Nobody, even the immediate families don't see that shit. So can they go out there and just have a full-on fucking street fight match where the guy's hitting the girl over the head with chairs and whatever? Because if it's all a performance and everybody's equal, it, it just doesn't make sense to open that whole can of peas. It makes the business look phony. It reminds everybody watching it. And yes, I've said in the past that the like a Sherry Martell or a really hot female valet, uh, Tammy Sunny, uh, to when she was Tammy in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, she took a few bumps, nothing major because she was a 120-pound girl. We didn't want to write her off TV for three months being in an iron lung. But, you know, the heel girl that that deserves to get bumped in the end, even if it's by a guy, if you do the old deal where you turn her over your knee and spank her, then the crowd loved it, but you weren't giving a pile driver to a 120-pound girl. Or right. if you if you did some, let's say, you know, fucking body slam, well, n- nobody really uses a full scoop slam in a domestic violence situation. Not that I've, I don't know. Speak for yourself. Well, I know with you, it's been your go-to move, Solomon, but, but that's the, you know, so you can get away with things like that. But when you actually have the, the whole competition, like I said, I'm just going to say that it brings, and that's what I said on Twitter. I said, well, now that y'all have run Scotty too hottie off of fucking Twitter with your bullshit, nicest guy around. How about that? Fuck his reason. How about this? Because it makes it look phony. And if you don't like that, kiss my fucking ass. You ain't going to run me off Twitter. The whole thing might collapse anyway. I don't give a shit. I think that I was a very measured. Year. That was a very measured response, I think. I know. measured it. <laughs> it measured about four lines. That's all it took me to tell all these people to go piss up a fucking rope. Well, it, it's it's weird to me because it seems to be an opinion that you're just not allowed to have, you, you, you know, it, it's one of these unspoken things and it's, it's fine if, if people have different opinions on it, but the fact that you can't even entertain the opinion that somebody might, you know, have an issue with this. I think the bigger problem, I, I understand where the concern's coming from, which is, you know, in wrestling, the nature of the way the business is most of the high profile, highest profile levels of competition are men's matches. So so for for women wrestlers, 
it seems like it's a benefit to get in on that because now you're mixing it up with the men and you're able to, you know, kind of maybe work at a higher level on the card or whatever. But but I no, think the, but the solution but that's, that's the problem is you mix it up with the men and they it drags the men down to your level. After a woman fucking is competitive with a man, right? Then how can you push that guy is going to beat Roman Reigns or Brock Lesnar or you know Gunther or you know pick the fucking star? Oh, I didn't say it made sense. I I just think that <laughs> <laughs> that's the thinking behind it. And I but I think the solution to me is. Instead of mixing everyone together, just, you know, lift up the, the the female part of the competition, the women's division, which they have been doing in the past few years, more than ever before in the history of the business. Give them more to do, you know, find the, the women wrestlers that are really talented and good, a lot of which we've been seeing and, and spotlight them, but against each other. I think that's perfectly fine. Just just lift up the division more instead of saying, well, we just have to have everybody wrestle everybody, you know, it's well, well, but but also but here with to Scotty's point, he the WWE wasn't calling him AEW wasn't calling him to book him on a steady base. It's these, as I said, so-called promoters want to be promoters, these indie the last several years that I did any kind of wrestling events. I would have to ask ahead of time when they were, whoever it was trying to be, even people I knew, I'd ask Court Bauer, hey, the invisible man isn't going to get booked on the show, is he? Nobody's going to break down into a dancing route. There's going to be no slow motion fucking spots or whatever. And, and you know, unfortunately, now that anybody can do this, both in the ring and outside of it, you have these promoters say, oh, this is a great thing. People will get a hoot out of it. And if you, like you said, if you express the opinion, well, no, this is fucking goofy and here's why, then, oh, you're horrible. You don't believe in equality. No, I don't. I don't on the other side either. Here's the, no, I don't believe that a trained professional female athlete can beat a trained professional male athlete in a wrestling contest or should. But I also don't think that guys can fucking do the, the get a perfect 10 like Nadia Komanichi. Or who was the, um, oh, help me. The, uh, the, the girl that got kneecapped, old Nancy Kerrigan. Oh, yes, Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. Okay, right. put, a, put a goddamn 250-pound wrestler out on skates on I Try to do Nancy Kerrigan's routine, see what'll fucking happen. We're, none of us are equal. Male, right. Males are not equal and females are not equal and nobody's exactly the same. So nobody's equal, but in just science and biology and nature, there are certain things that don't fucking fit. And that's one of them. So, and, and then there's the unsavory aspect of, or, you know, what are you doing to this fucking woman? And, and what kind of liberties are you going to take with somebody that's obviously going to be smaller than you and uh, you see these indie shows where they're throwing these girls around like fucking samsonites and and they're so happy oh i got to be a part of this yeah you almost got to be paralyzed you won't lead a normal life for the rest of your life because somebody in a barn wanted to throw you like a shot put and you got a kick out of it right i i think it's a world of difference between 
you know, uh, let's say a, a woman wrestler who is just jacked up and you look at her and you go, wow, that's that is one intimidating looking wrestler in there with a man, which I could understand doing once in a while. It's a very different thing from having a woman who is in the ring with a man who is of a much larger build, much more muscular, much more intimidating looking to me. And even that's what was part of Scotty's point. It's a little bit disturbing. And I think it's okay to, to share yeah, that and opinion. He's, he's, he's got a daughter that's 20 years old. He doesn't want to be on tape or on video around the world beating up some random girl wrestler. It's one of those things if you showed it to somebody who didn't watch wrestling, and I know this shouldn't always be the barometer, but if you showed it to somebody who didn't watch wrestling, knew nothing about wrestling, they would go, well, this is a, this is an atrocity. What, what am I watching? Is this a crime being committed, you know? Well, and the only time I've seen a man versus woman match and felt sorry for the man was anybody that had to work with Nicole Bass. Otherwise than that, oh boy. And that was just because of her, not necessarily her size and strength, but the fluidity of her work. I I took a body slam from Nicole Bass one time at one of the early developmental shows up in Massachusetts where um, Dr. Tom and Dory Funk Jr. were still training guys in the uh, studio up there. And Okay, we showed her beforehand how to pick me up and more importantly, how to turn me over and put me down, not on my head. But I swear to God, she picks me up. Woo! I go up, down, nice slam, boom, got it. And I look down at my chest. And you remember some of the older listeners may remember in the 80s, they had the I ran into Tammy Faye at the mall t-shirts about Tammy Faye Baker, where it was like you smushed her incredibly thick. Uh, overdone makeup and boom. And that was what my chest and the front of my suit jacket looked like. Her whole face rubbed off on me as she put me down. Wow. Yeah. I think Stan Lane wore that (laughs) shirt on a promo once. I remember seeing uh, that I I bumped into Tammy Faye t-shirt. Yes, he did. He stole that from me as a matter of fact. Ah, okay. But anyway, um, but nevertheless, I just wanted to register uh, my support. Free Scotty too hottie if he ever even decides to get back on because he again he's a grown adult forty nine year old man I think he can survive without Twitter but if he gets back on it I think everybody should show him their support for being honest and polite and normal everyone but you know it's it's the internet Solomon it's the internet out there and sometimes it's the internet service providers. You know, you've been listening to the programs. Me and Brian, last we've done investigative reporting on this. And we have discovered that many of these major internet service providers across the country, they have stationed employees that live in the walls of your home. And that's sometimes you hear the voices late at night. They're whispering to each other because they can't just be one because they'd get lonesome. And also, one's got to sleep, and they're keeping an eye on you 24 hours a day. That's what our friends at ExpressVPN say. The internet service providers are keeping track of you 24 hours a day. So while one's in there sleeping, the other one's got his ear to the fucking other side of the wall. Mm, I, I didn't know, know it worked what he that might way. Hear. Huh? 
I didn't know it worked that way. I don't think I've ever actually heard anybody in the walls of my of my home. I think if you're hearing that, then there's you really have bigger. Well, problems. no, I, you should have been keeping up with me and Brian. We've been discussing this for weeks. I mentioned to him that's why whenever they come to service something, that's why I won't let those Spectrum people in my house. Whenever they come to service something, two of them show up, but only one of them leaves. They wait until you turn your back, and one of them secretes himself in the walls of your home. Because that's what, where is your computer plugged into? It's plugged into the wall. Right. And that's where they're keeping an eye on what you're doing. They're spying on you 24 hours a day. And every once in a while, like I said, you can hear them whispering because they got to fucking stay busy and talk to each other every once in a while. But normally they're just listening to what you're doing. And that's how that all of your internet service providers know how to violate your privacy by telling you not only what you can and can't watch, but trying to send you advertisements for things and make a sucker out of you because they're keeping and and let's face it, sometimes just for purely investigative reporting, for research, for background, potentially for a, a tell-all book to blow the lid off of a serious industry, you know, sometimes you've got to go on the internet and watch. Dumbo does it donkey style 74 times. I don't know about that. Not me. Well, well, you've got to take notes and some, and there's so much going on that you miss it the first time around. But now you don't want everybody to know you're doing that because they won't understand you were trying to do it to benefit society on behalf of the Association for the Prevention of Cruelty to Donkeys and Asses. See, you're using that word you again now. And I, and I know you didn't like it when I was saying that you well, were booking China. Royal, it's, right? it's the royal you oh, is what okay. I'm saying. So, and and did you know also, uh, Solomon Grundy? Grundy, did you know that the, the internet service providers are keeping you from seeing thousands of programs that are only available outside of the United States? And because you're inside the United States, well, you're just fucked. And as what we talked to the network, the WWE network that still apparently functions for our friends around the world, but not for us here in this country that have to be burdened by the cock service. And nobody wants to be burdened by the cock service when you can see the network. So what Express VPN, what they do to counteract this discrimination that we're all suffering is they just, it's like they give you a secret identity, but it's not your identity. It's your location. They're going to send you somewhere in the world to where you can get all the things on the internet that you're entitled to because the internet service provider won't know that you're in Teterboro or Secaucus. They'll think you're in Yugoslavia or the Republic of Chad, wherever the fuck you want to be. ExpressVPN will come to your house, bundle up you and your computer and ship you over there. And that way you'll be able to see everything that you want to see on your computer. They let you choose from over 90 different countries. Every time you run out of stuff to watch, just fire up the app on your laptop or your smart TV. Or if you're like me, you have the electrician come in and just wire up a wall switch that you can flip. And you can switch your country and hit connect. And then you refresh the page and get a brand new selection of shows. Not just on the Netflix, not just on the network, on all that stuff. Let's say you like using it to watch 
Oh my God. Oh, BBC also stands for the British Broadcasting <laughs> Corporation, doesn't it? I, as far as I know, that's the only thing it stands for, Jim. I have no well, idea what you're talking about. Well, it, it, see, if it's only available in the UK, because I think they got that other stuff, it's available around the world, the other. But nevertheless, there's a reason why ExpressVPN is the number one rated VPN provider by publishers like Tech Radar, The Verge. FBI's most wanted, whoa, uh, most importantly, I'm sorry, not most wanted, yeah. most importantly, you, the consumer. And so anyway, folks, what you got to do right now to start getting to a different country and loving it is go to expressvpn.com slash JCE. Right now you get three extra months of service for free, expressvpn.com slash JCE. And you can learn more about all this, but that's that's the thing. They got you pinpointed, Solomon. Yeah, they but they, they know exactly where you are. You got to switch this thing up. Wild card, bitches. Don't let these people know where you are. They could they could drop a bomb on you like the Gap Band. Switch now, your location up. Be scurrying here and there with to and fro, hither and yon, right? I guess. I, I mean, I just want to clarify one thing you said is they're not shipping you off to any other countries, right? I mean, you get to do this in the comfort of your own home. You're not. Well, so they're just going to take they're going to take your computer then. They're taking your computer to a foreign country. I don't Well, I don't, how else? How else would your computer show up as being in Russia or in the Czech Republic or in the Congo or on the Isle of Malta? Or wherever the fuck you can choose from over 90 different countries. I thought you got a free trip along with it. So the Isle of Malta, then I guess you're saying that even Baron Mikel Cicluna would be eligible for this VPN service. Yes. If he was still alive today. If he was alive. Yeah. If he was alive today, he'd be eligible. And some of you folks out there, check your pulse. If you're alive today, you are eligible for this fine service at expressvpn.com slash JCE. All right. Well, there may be people in the walls, but Brian Solomon, you and your you even exposed your young son to this, but you went to the AEW Dynamite telecast in person in Bridgeport, Connecticut last week. Where where are you geographically? You say you're up there in the northeast. Is what what's the temperature up there right now where you are? Um, I think the technical term is colder than a witch's tit. Well, there you colder than a well digger's ass, as Mama that Cornette too. used to say. I want you to know in Louisville can tell you it was 18 degrees this morning. Oh, not like that. No, we don't we don't have it that bad. It's, oh it's about, no, it was about 30. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Normally, I you are in, you were in the frigid northeast that I had to uh inhabitate <laughs> Connecticut, where it would normally be cold enough to freeze the fucking balls on a brass monkey and it's not even as cold as it is in louisville kentucky right now our our average highs over the past three days have our our high temperatures rather have been below our average low for this time of year so i was trying to go for was there some kind of horrible weather emergency that uh left half of the building empty up there in Bridgeport this past Wednesday night because I saw a, a a video pan of the arena and it didn't it didn't look encouraging for the folks over in AEW. 
Well, I think if I could steal a line from the great Bobo Brazil, I think that the new 24-hour gas station down the road must have been <laughs> open. Uh, but yeah, it was it was not good. Not good. I, I was there, like you said, and with my son and a few hundred of our closest friends. And um, I was in a st- I was actually shocked. I mean, I, and I mean it. And, and I'm not saying this as I'm saying this as somebody who actually I really want the company to succeed because I think it's good for the business to have an alternative, kind of like what MJF even said in his promo. It, you know, that that's the real deal. It's good to have an alternative. But um, my jaw was hanging open because I, you don't really get a sense of it when you watch on TV. I think the biggest sense you get is how quiet it is. That's one thing. But I'm sitting there and I'm I'm telling you no lie. Um, the entire hard camera side where the camera is was empty. And I don't mean like, oh, there's pockets of people here and there. I mean empty to the point where what they must have done is whatever smatterings of people were there, they brought them over to the other side to sort of like fill it out. And even the the other sides, the other three sides, I would say maybe two thirds full. And, um, you know, it, it's just I went to Mohegan Sun the week before for Rampage or two weeks before, and it was even worse. So shocking that's the only only way i can describe it well but now let me ask you this because a lot of people who don't know connecticut geography i wish i was one of them they go well bridgeport connecticut it's not like new york or los angeles what is it 30 miles from new york city something it's like a that, suburb yeah. of of the city and having said that it's also what 15 miles maybe not even from stamford who on the AEW roster may have drawn a bigger house if they had been advertised in Bridgeport, Connecticut? CM Punk or Twinkle Toes McFinger Bang? Well, I I mean, I, I think the issue now is I don't know if there's anybody that could at this point. I, I feel like uh, it's more than just a talent issue. It's a perception issue. There's just, um, I mean, yes, of course, I think CM Punk would be a bigger draw, but I don't even know if any one person um, can turn this around right now. It's got to be more of a creative thing because what I can also describe from being in the crowd here is, or crowd in in quotations, is (laughs) that um, there's a, it's hard to describe, there's a sense of almost like demoralization in the crowd, like just a, an eerie kind of quiet people not really knowing how to react to things or it, it, it's a very, uh, very low energy. <laughs> people can... not knowing exactly what's going on in front of them. Probably. Is oh, it is it true. the always sunny? Why is this happening moment? Absolutely. No, th- that's a great point, because um, the thing is, I think, you know, you, you have people like Jr. and Tony and and. Taz and and even Excalibur and they um they can sometimes cover up for things when you're watching the show and they kind of explain things sometimes or cover up for mistakes or whatever. When you're sitting there live and you don't have the benefit of that, I mean, look, people can make fun of me. Maybe I'm getting old or whatever, but <laughs> it, it is it is chaos. And and I don't want it to be that way. It's just at least when you go, okay, Brian Solomon, the WWE shill, I get it. Yeah, yeah, I used to work there, but. When you go to a WWE show, you you know what's going on, you know, <laughs> whether you like it or not, I don't know. But 
but you actually know what's happening. You know who everyone is. On these shows, it there's much more chaos. And I think one of the things they really need to reconsider, and it's it's brutal when you're there live, is doing this hour or hour and a half of dark and dark elevation before the main show starts because it kills the crowd. Oh, you- good Lord. Well, you know, I actually, we've talked about that, Brian Last and I have before, but to really actually, you have sat there and seen that an hour and a half of really bad matches before this television program, the people have to be in somewhat of a snoot. Yeah, and you know they're they're cramming in all of these short little matches because of some kind of need, I guess, that they have to pad everybody's records, you know, and and they're just rotating these people out. And I'm telling you, it, and and it's not just people could say, oh, Solomon, you don't watch the show enough, you don't know who everyone is. Look, not everybody's on Twitter. I had people around me where a lot of people didn't know who the heck some of these people were, or or they didn't know who had a beef with who or who was a heel or who was a face. And the matches are happening so fast that they don't register. And look, I'm not saying that you book everything at the level of a five-year-old child, but but I had my son with me who usually has a lot of fun when we go to see wrestling. And, you know, he, he loves WWE. Granted, it's a much more, I think, kid-friendly product. Right. But I, but I could just sense as he's sitting next to me, and he's a kid with a pretty, with a pretty good attention span for his age. I could sense his energy and enthusiasm. This is a five-year-old kid just being sapped from his body one match after another as he's just starting to even go like, who are these guys? Like, what, what, what? he even was asking me questions like that because he loves, look, he loves Orange Cassidy. He's five. He loves Luchasaurus. He loves, well, you know, these characters and things. But he's watching all these guys and having no idea who they are. And by the time the show actually started at eight o'clock, he was almost ready to go home. <laughs> it's true. Well, they, they may have hit on a great marketing strategy. Let the people in free and charge them to get out. <laughs> the, the gates might improve, but okay. We're, we're not trying to tear the whole thing down for the sake of it, but no, the bigger point is, and that's why I mentioned, you know, a punk in the home, you know, territory of, down the road from the WWF main office, they had a big time star that brought a few hundred thousand extra people. They blew that. They haven't had their darling EVPs. Everybody else is in chaos behind the scenes. And like you mentioned, a lot of it is creative, but I think a lot of the people are just in kind of a snoot or a snit, as I said, because of the way this whole thing has started falling apart and they had high hopes for it. Yeah. And, and the fan base, I mean, again, this is anecdotal, just my feeling of being among the people is people are, um, lose. There's a lot of goodwill that has been lost. And, you know, like I said, not everybody is following every last gory detail of these behind the scenes shenanigans that are going on. I am telling you that you had people there in the live audience that I could hear within earshot who were saying things like, is CM Punk going to be here? Because oh. they, liter- they literally didn't even know why he was off TV, because it has never been explained unless you are on, you know, wrestling internet constantly. You had people who didn't clearly know why the Bucks and Omega hadn't been seen. And when they put their graphic on the screen, I will say, 
it got the biggest pop of the show when they showed that they were going to be, you know, appearing at full gear that popped the crowd. But, but again, a big part of it was like, there really is confusion as to where they've been. And these kind of things um, at the ground level that a lot of us in super plugged in internet wrestling weirdos don't understand <laughs> is that to the average fan, they don't know what the hell is going on. And that's kind of what I've been trying to say about all promotions since really since Ring of Honor 10 or 12 years ago is that in a lot of cases, the promoter, the booker, the match, whoever the case, whoever's in control assumes that everybody knows everybody and everything. And I've always felt that the one thing that the television program that you produce and you're especially if you have more than one, your flagship program needs to do is explain to everybody who everybody is, whether you should like them or not, and who they're mad at and whose side they're on. That's how you gain a fan base in the wrestling business. If you have any kind of entertaining or charismatic wrestling talent, then all the people need to know is whose side are they on, who are they mad at, and why. And, you know, but you can't assume that everybody is so, as you said, you know, minutely, granularly wrapped up in all of this. But anyway, the the program that they shot and aired was the go-home show for a pay-per-view that's a really big deal. That's the first one they've had since the last one they had that didn't turn out real well for anybody. And hopefully we're going to be crowning a new champion and all that type of thing. But I just wanted to go through briefly. I'm not going to critique every goddamn match, but just a few impressions that I had of these matches. And maybe you can tell me whether people in the crowd shared the same thought or same confusion in some cases. And then we'll see what the ratings did again this week. Did they manage to keep the people or did they manage to run them off again? But the, the most marquee match on the show was the opening match. And I don't know now whether they know the opening audience is going to be the biggest one they've got. So that could be it. Yeah, that actually makes sense. So they're going to try to keep them by putting as many names as they can or whatever, I think, at this point. Because they tried the other week. They tried the first thing we saw walking down the aisleway was the Puddin' Gang, the best friends. And that lost them how many hundred thousand viewers. But uh, but they've their main event spot, they've almost given up on and they're doing the same thing as SmackDown does, instead of a main event wrestling match on this two-hour wrestling program, the most interesting thing they've got is when they bring their champion out, talk to his challenger. And so the main event's an interview. In On SmackDown, it's Roman Reigns and blank, and here it's Moxley, and in this case, MJF, because I think they figure if anybody's going to keep MJF to Leah, or keep if anybody's going to keep the viewers till the end of the program, it's MJF. But goddamn, there's there's an obstacle course in the middle. So the first match was Chris Jericho and Sammy Guevara 
against Brian Danielson and Claudio Castagnoli. And I was ready to like this because these guys can work. They have in the past. And I guess the problem that I have is that Danielson and Claudio, and to even to a lesser extent, Jericho, we know how he's been, but instead of giving these guys an example to look at, they've just adopted the same sloppy habits that the rest of the guys have. This wasn't even a no disqualification, lazy booking match, but they, they pretty much worked it like it was. Cause, and I guess as Jericho is Danielson, are these guys figuring, okay, every other match is just chaos for no good reason. And most of them don't have any rules anyway, and there's no disqualifications anyway. So let's just do that. Cause it's, cool spots and gets good pops but they ought to be better than this i think yeah i mean no no go ahead go go ahead i was gonna say i think i mean it was the best and most memorable match on the show i would say i mean again it was coming after the hour of endless dark matches but you have four guys that are they're pros i like them all i think they're all great even Guevara, who certainly has a lot less experience than the others, but, um, you know, it's, it was nothing great. It was, it just happened to be the best match on a pretty lackluster (laughs) show. They were the nicest guys in prison, but (laughs) you know, here, here's the thing. I'll tell you exactly what I'm saying with Danielson a year ago in those single matches. He, he was having brilliant matches with everybody. He knows how to do it. Uh, Claudio can work Jericho when he wants to, but they had the, the AEW match. As soon as the bell starts, it's a four way fight. Two of them go to the floor, two of them stay in the ring. And oh, Brie is the referee. So she stares at, at everything and they go four way for a couple of minutes. And then the heels just roll away and Danielson gets a hold on Sammy and everything comes to a halt and they're still having the match. And then they get heat on Danielson, but he gives a cold tag to Claudio, who makes a nice comeback. But then answer me this, Brian Solomon, because you were there and you had a view of the entire arena. They started doing the thing that all tag team matches in all the companies do these days, where two guys will completely disappear from the ring and you can't see them on camera. And two guys have a single match for a couple minutes until something happens to where one guy's partner comes in suddenly at 100%, makes a save or starts something else. And then two more guys will disappear. And those days, are they just laying outside on the floor? Can people tell? Are they reading a book? Do they crawl under the ring? Can people tell they're just sitting there waiting for a spot? What's going on? It's a very strange uh, visual. And I, and I was talking to somebody about it even that night because, yes, when there aren't cameras to redirect your attention and announcers to cover for things, it's all there right in front of you. And that is exactly what you see. You see guys, and I have no idea why they do this. You see guys laying on the floor, and what they're doing is they're very half-heartedly kind of selling because at the same time, they also have to be waiting for their cue. So. They're laying there looking semi-dazed, but at the same time... <laughs> like the crowd, like the right. crowd, semi-dazed. 
but you could still see that they're watching the action very closely because they're waiting for when they have to come back in. And the fans that are around them, like let's say right at ringside, are just looking at them, like looking down at them, and it looks like they're almost wondering why doesn't this guy just get up and get and get on the apron? And I don't have an answer for that. I don't know I what it so is. I would be so embarrassed. I would be embarrassed if I could tell the people were looking at me and they knew I could just stand right up. It, right. It, I don't know if it's that. What is it about the visual of having all these guys? Do they not like seeing all those people standing on the ring apron? I don't have an explanation for it because it, it usually tends to happen the more people there are in the match, like if it's an eight, yeah. man, six man, and I, I are they worried the ring is going to collapse? Like what is, the, <laughs> what is the fear that they have of everyone standing on the apron at the same time? But I, I it worked for a hundred years, and and yes, there are spots where you get heat on a baby face. He makes a hot tag. The new baby face, the fresh one, makes the comeback. One of the heels bumps out pulls that baby face that just got the heat on him off onto the floor and posts him one time, gets color on him or hits him with a chair one time, and then the guy's selling and the attention is supposed to be on him selling and bleeding and trying to fight back. Well, now it's two on one or whatever, but you don't just do that in every match multiple times. It's off-putting visually. And, and then, you know, they kept... They got heat on Danielson. He made a cold tag to Claudio because nobody was trying to stop him. Claudio makes a comeback. Then Claudio and Jericho at some point just both cold tagged out again at the same time. And they, uh, the veterans, when I got into business, would tell me that was, well, you're starting to match over now. You've done all this shit to get to this point. Now you just flat-footed tag two other guys in and start over. And then they had a single match and blah, blah, blah. So it, I, I remember what, you know, the old timers say, Jesus Christ, heat, hot tag, come back, finish, get out of there. But then the, the finish was, again, what were people saying in the arena? The finish is Jericho gets his bat. And while, while the other two, uh, Jericho and Claudio are in the ring, while Danielson and Guevara are on the floor, Jericho gets his bat and goes to hit Claudio right in front of referee Aubrey, but Claudio trips him and goes for the big swing. Aubrey's looking at him holding a baseball bat while he's being swung, and it's a cool visual. Claudio's got him in the big swing while Jericho's holding on to the baseball bat, but the referee is staring at him having just brought a baseball bat into the ring and trying to use it and doesn't call it and doesn't disqualify anybody. Right. And then it, and then fucking it ends up that Claudio gets this. Claudio takes the bat away from Jericho after he drops him and then gets a scorpion death lock on Jericho while holding the bat over his shoulder, like parade rest or whatever with the rifle. And Aubrey just calls the tap out by Jericho while Castagnoli is holding the bat. Well, they can't, even, they can't even do the swing spot with the bat and distract the referee and then ditch the bat to do the tap out because it was a cool spot is more important than the entire logic of a goddamn 125 years of the accumulated wrestling business. Yeah, and I mean, look, I'm I, I'm not breaking any ground to say that the referee 
situation is is one of the the most I, I don't know alarming or the weakest aspects of the AEW product because it's and it's even more apparent again when you're there live because then you have the ability to just completely stare at them and watch what they're doing every second <laughs> and what you find is that they are just standing there I mean I, I can't disagree because I saw it with my own eyes they just Stand, they they kind of there's portions where they're just staring vacantly. It's almost like they're watching what's happening, but they're looking through it. They're not really seeing it. They're they're standing way too far away. Um, you know, I, I find that this is a particular problem with this company. And, you know, I've written about it before and I, I can't blame them. I can't because they're obviously being told to do this this way. They're being told to do their job in a certain way, and look, they're doing it. Well, and, and actually, to be honest, I don't think, I see what you're saying. I think you phrased it in reverse. They're not being told to not do this. You don't think that they're being specifically told to hang back and not get too heavily involved and to let things go? Because I think they probably well, are. No, I, th I, th I, I think that this is what they do now because they've never been taught how to not They've never been taught how to actually referee wrestling like wrestling is supposed to be refereed. Nobody follows the rules. They all come from most of the independents. They like these guys. They want to get along. If you give a referee a finish, if it doesn't make any sense, what's the referee supposed to say? Well, doesn't work for me, brother. They don't have that power, so they have to stand there and look like idiots. And they just go with it because they figure, okay, people in a more important position than me, you're saying this is okay, so I guess it is. You know, it, if Tommy Young went in there, he'd have a goddamn coronary. But, you know, that's because referees used to be able, used to be taught how to referee, and now they just see what these guys are doing and imitate it. I think it's, it's a very tough job. I don't envy them. Refereeing is hard because you have to walk this line, at least if you're doing it the right way, you have to walk this line where you don't want to be drawing too much attention to yourself. You know, the, the attention shouldn't be on you. But at the same time, you have to always at least give the appearance <laughs> that you're doing something. You right. have to look like you're involved, you're in there, you're, you're the voice of authority, Without again, without stealing the thunder away from the wrestlers, but you can't just make it so clear that you're just in there to count a three, and then that's really all you're in there for. And you have to at least give the illusion that that's not what you're in there for. You have to <laughs> look it, like you're in charge. It doesn't start with the referees, though. It's that's why Watts. If you middled the referee, which is what it used to be called back when this was a business instead of a playground. You middled the referee. You put the referee in the middle of something. You buried him. He saw you use an object that uh, would be a disqualification or saw you use a move that should be a disqualification or did something to make him look like complete shit. Bill Watts would find the guys, the wrestlers that did that to the referee. And it, you would get it on your check. Fine, $50 or $100, whatever, middling the referee. Why did you do that in front of him? It's your job not to. As a right. Tommy Young told me a story when that brute Bernard was like a French Canadian, you know, version of chic or whatever. He was wild and crazy, a madman, and he loved to brawl and use gimmicks and everything. 
he rolls out of the ring one night in Charlotte and gets a pulls from under the ring. And this was before they actually salted the underneath the ringside area. It was just an extra board left over. He picks out like this four foot long two before. And he sticks it over his head. Imagine this. Brute Bernard, this big, bald, 260-pound, fucking ugly, hairy-chested behemoth, has got a two-by-four that he puts behind his back and sticks the end of it in his tights. And so the top of the two-by-four is sticking up over his head about a foot, right? And he gets back in the ring, and he tells Tommy Young, the referee, he says, don't see it. <laughs> <laughs> talking about everybody got in building and see it right but that yeah. used to be frowned on and now they just oh uh, yeah yeah all right all right what did the live crowd think of the acclaimed entrance and video with captain insano and the fake keith lee and swerve on the toy telephone thing well, I can I can definitely confirm that the acclaimed are are kind of like the most over people they have there right now. I mean, they just the fact that they're coming out or they're doing anything, it wakes up the crowd. They really yeah. did. They really did wake up for this. They liked the video because, you know, the, the thing with Captain Insano, it's sort of it's like in the sweet spot of of their audience. Their audience is, you know, kind of a older millennial or generation X kind of age range. And these are people, you know, everybody knows the movie, the water boy. It's kind of at this point, like a nostalgia thing. And so that, that people liked it. It was entertaining, but then the match killed everybody. It, <laughs> well. it, did. It, 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 it killed, it not just killed the crowd. It killed the crowd for the rest of the show. I was talking to someone else about this. Oh, now, just, come on now. Wait a minute. This could have been one of those things like murder on the Orient Express where a bu <laughs> there's a bunch of suspects here on who killed this show. But for the people who didn't watch the program and, and you are out there, believe us, people who didn't watch the program, the acclaimed make an entrance live, but then they pitch to a video on the screen and they're dressed up as interviewers, broadcasters, and they're interviewing Big Show, Paul White, who's Captain Insano, and then a fake Keith Lee and Swerve. <laughs> they looked like Young Rock characters, right? Like, yes, <laughs> young yes, Rock this yes. week had the Nation of Domination. If I was Ron Simmons and D'Lo Brown and fucking Godfather, I'd sue for these pudgy fat fucks that they had perpetrating them, but a fake Keith Lee and Swerve call in on a toy telephone, and then they're suddenly all rapping on the beach. Is what I got. And the people loved the acclaimed. And this was not mine necessarily, my cup of tea, but they loved them being there live. They loved them doing the video and mocking the heels. Okay, that's fine. Yes, people eat but, out of their hands. They really yes. do. But then, like you said, here comes Swerve. And does Keith Lee ever show? Was he there in the building? Was he ever seen live? He was never seen live, and I can't imagine they would just have him lurking in the back and not coming yeah. out. So he never shows up for work. He's, you know, uh, but as soon as Swerve comes out, Billy Gunn tackles Swerve in the aisle, and all the referees immediately swarm. Now, it, sometimes we can have a full-on gang riot with flamethrowers, and a god not referee one will come out. But as soon as... The manager tackles one guy and now, oh, oh shit, god damn, we gotta stop this. Fucking people could be killed. But 
remember Billy like three weeks ago was kidnapped by Swerve and apparently had one of his fingers, if not cut off, then poorly treated by Swerve's pliers. But then the following week on TV, Billy was in the ring for his birthday celebration, happy as a fucking pig in poop. But now he's still mad. So, yeah, continuity. Well, somebody reminded him that he was supposed to be mad at Swerve at the following week. You know, after it could have been us episode. on the program. Yeah, maybe. I yeah, that was that was very jarring to me when he came out for that birthday thing, and they just acted like nothing happened. But his hands were still wrapped up, so they acknowledged that something <laughs> did happen. But he was apparently okay with it. He was in good spirits. Uh, he didn't. They didn't even explain to you how he got out of it, you know. And and but now he's mad again. You know, he's well. Mad he was waiting. He was waiting to get the bandages off before I he guess. tackled Swerve. But anyway, so Billy's gone, and they had a single match with Swerve and Anthony Bowens, and of course, jump start. So they start out at a hundred miles an hour and. Good luck keeping that pace up, especially on this program when everybody does it. And quite a while later, Swerve won with a convoluted finishing move that's going to fuck somebody's lower and or upper back up one of these days because uh, the margin for error is slim on landing on the guy's head. And also, even though... when you, You're not taking a flat back bump when you're landing on your upper back with your knees over your shoulders. Then you're taking a move that's going to fuck your back up. But um, but uh, the match did not live up to, I, I can't say live up to that. There was no hype for this match. The match didn't gel, didn't come across live or on Memorex. It, right? it came yeah, it came out of nowhere. You know, like I said, they they loved uh, the promo when they first came out and the rap they did. They loved the video, which I, I thought it was very funny. I mean, they really, I don't know. I thought it was funny, but they buried uh, Strickland and, and, and <laughs> Keith Lee like six feet under in that video. I mean, it was hilarious, but... But they have really made them into, uh, I don't know, like complete objects of ridicule. I don't know if that was their goal, because I know with Swerve, you know, the part of his whole thing is he's supposed to be this really cool guy. You know, like that's that's part of his character is he's really kind of cool and, you know, he's on the cutting edge. And they sort of now have turned him into just a, a laughing stock. Um, the match itself. And, and I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing if that's how you want your your heel to be perceived, but it's just definitely a big shift. But the match was, um, yeah, I mean, the crowd was deflated because you had then you had Bowens lose the match and in a very decisive way. And, you know, they were ready to to cheer for him. And then when he got hurt, it it, it really did throw things off. There was um, I don't know if you saw or heard it, but apparently he did hurt his shoulder in the match. And yeah, I could ended up in a sling on, on right. social media the next day. I wasn't sure watching it at first if it was just kind of part of the match because he's favoring his shoulder especially because Strickland kept working on the shoulder, which is insane <laughs> if you think about it. But there, I'm telling you, um, there was something that happened. He took a shot on his shoulder, and I don't think it came across on television. But you could hear. I know I know you hear audible snaps and cracks all the time. Oh. They're always slapping themselves, so you can never tell when it's real. But you could hear a very distinct kind of a crack or a snap. <laughs> 
And I, I don't know if it was a rotator cuff or something, but from that point on, he was just in a world of misery. Uh, I can tell you from personal experience that a it's sick and it makes you ill, but a ligament snapping like an ACL in your knee sounds like a broomstick. Well, that's what it probably and, was then. Well, but, you know, something in his shoulder, no, I don't know about... I don't know all about these things, but goddamn, if you if your body is popping and cracking without being self-slapped, that's not a good sign. Right. Uh, and and honestly, with again, with the acclaim, they've got something here, but these guys are green. Put them in tag team matches, have them win on TV and keep them short, and do a, an angle for your pay-per-view where the most dedicated audience will be watching and paying, and then you can give them a little more freedom because that's also going to be the most forgiving audience. But when they keep putting them in long matches or singles matches split and then beating the baby face clean with a finish, which somehow seems to be popular these days. Uh, they had a package for Nyla Rose and her theft of Jane Cargill's TBS title belt, but no FTR on the show. Now, by the way, that first tag team match that we talked about was 25 minutes into the show before that was over with. And these other things we've talked about, and they gave plenty of time to poor Swerve and Bowens. But uh, FTR, just no way we can shoehorn them into the thing. All it, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this then. <laughs> what were the people saying? Tony Schiavone did an in-ring interview with Samoa Joe, and I swear... I think for the first time since AEW Dynamite has been on the air, the interviewer asked a question about what the guy he's talking to had done the previous week, and Joe actually got to answer it. Yes, I, I, I'm so glad you noticed that because I noticed it too, and I give all the credit for that to Samoa Joe because he came across as somebody who actually knows how those segments are supposed to go. That, you know, he's been around long enough to know how it's done. You, you know, you put, he put over Tony directly, you know, it, verbally. And you make the, you know, the announcer seem like someone important. Or, or even if you're ridiculing them like The Rock used to do, you're doing something with them. Yes. You're allowing them to actually hold the microphone. Crazy idea. You're not taking it away from them and walking away. You're getting all your points across while working within the concept of what an interview segment is supposed to be. So he actually came across as a professional when he was doing this thing with Tony. It was great. Imagine that. And he had emotion. And Joe is always well-spoken. He's got that game face. He has a tone in his voice. You take him seriously. Now his material, <laughs> through no fault of his own, was caca. Because the flimsiest of reasons for his well. The whole deal was because Wardlow ran his mouth and failed to respect me. I'm standing here holding one of the 18 championship belts in this Fakakta company. And he said he wanted to win all the belts. That was the reason. And yeah. that was and and we talked about on the program a couple weeks ago. I did with Brian Last, not you, Solomon Grundy. But you can't if you split a team up when they only been together six weeks and there was no real origin story to begin with, otherwise, and these two guys just walked out and helped each other one day, then nobody's emotionally invested in it. And the only, you, instead of a 
surprise shocking turn, you get a surprise what the fuck already turn reaction. And there was, this is the flimsiest of reasons. Yeah. I mean, if, if any tag team that was on, on a speaking basis with each other, that would have probably come up in the car or whatever before it. So that's the thing is, it just, it came out of nowhere and it's a flimsy reason, but okay, now Joe has turned and he's a heel, but now here comes Hobbs and interrupts this interview, Powerhouse Hobbs, who's been kicking Wardlow's ass, now he wants to kick Joe's ass. Well, the goddamn best way in the world to get heat on a brand new heel that's just switched heel from being a babyface is by having the other heels want to beat him up too. But then while they're arguing, Wardlow comes into the ring from behind and attacks Joe, and then Hobbs gets on Wardlow, and then Joe gets on Hobbs, and then again, from the land that brings us, you know, fucking riots that makes goddamn medieval battles look like skirmishes, suddenly all 20 jobbers they have on the crew hit the ring at the same time for a big pull-apart, because that visually looks cool with all the, you know, the big guys and these little doofuses. But then Wardlow leaves the ring, or, or Wardlow was, was left in the ring, everybody else left the ring, and Wardlow is there with Dork Order, who back off from him, like, we don't want to mess with you, so Wardlow runs and dives over the top rope onto all the others on the floor. What did anybody in the building understand who they were supposed to be cheering for in that instance? Or did everybody just go to Wardlow as the default because they didn't understand what was going on? I think it's probably that the latter, what you just said, where, you know, it was it's like they, they do kind of and everyone's guilty of this, but they pick and choose when they want to do the big pull apart where everybody comes out to try to break it up. because, And then there'll be other times where someone's just being brutalized <laughs> and everyone's just watching or acting like nothing's happening. Like it's just, Hey, it's just part of the show. And then now and then they'll go, Oh, this is serious. We have to go and break it up. Um, and, and I have to, you know, they sent in the security guards. Well, I have to say one of them, I'll, I'll put him over my, my good friend, indie wrestler, Lucas chase. He was the guy who took the spine buster bump from Wardlow, <laughs> which I told him this. I don't think it's not just cause he was my friend was the best spot of the entire brawl. <laughs> was Wardlow giving the spine buster to one of the, you know, quote unquote security guys. But, um, I mean, you know, people, these are people that the fans want to like, and that's another part of the problem. They want to like Joe, they want to like Wardlow. Um, but it makes it hard to like them when you, when you are so often confused as to how you're supposed to respond or, or what exactly is happening. Like you said, the motivation for the turn, I remember watching it going, this isn't really it, right? That's not the whole reason why he's turning on him, just because he said kind of nonchalantly, oh, yeah, I'd like to win every title in AEW someday. Oh, well, now you've gone too oh, far. Oh, wait, I have one of those titles. That means he wants to beat me. You know, that's sort of like the reasoning that my son would have, you know, and he's five, <laughs> when, about getting, get, you know, feeling jilted or upset about something. And that's excusable because he's five. But when, you know, a giant grown man is getting upset because hypothetically his friend one day might want to win the title that he has, and that's going to be enough to break up your tag team. 
Um, yeah, I'm just baffling to me. Well, here's and again, also, you said something people want to like Samoa Joe. So the natural thing is to have him attack somebody from behind and turn him heel. And here's again, the next segment was a backstage promo with Dr. Britt Baker talking about Soraya and their match coming up. And this was a very well done. If they're switching her baby face and wanting the people to boo Soraya out of the arena, because this was a complete baby face promo by the top female heel. She clearly stated her dedication and qualifications and things that she had done and phrased it in such a manner that it is it became a hometown territorial thing. I've, I'm AEW, you're an outsider. Anything that you, in a perfect world, if you wanted to make her the most popular girl on the roster and make your brand new babyface acquisition a complete heel and turn the fans against them, this is exactly the interview that should have been done. So was that what they were trying to do, or did they again somehow have one of their talents do a brilliant interview that completely contradicts the way that they're being presented? Well, it came across as being intentional, That's which isn't to say that it's still not confusing, because why would you do it? I mean, whoever wrote that, there's no way that they were thinking, oh, yeah, this is really going to make Britt Baker the heel in this match. Like, th there's no way anybody would think that. You you had to know. Did Britt Baker write it? And 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 Tony just said, oh, yeah, Britt, come up with a good interview to do. Did she just slip it by? <laughs> Who knows? But but 100% she is now the baby face in this dynamic. And Soraya has been set up as the heel, completely as the heel. And I don't know why, because, you know, she's coming in with this inspirational story. She's coming back. You know, it's a natural fit. Britt Baker's a great heel. I don't know why, it, you know, if this is happening without their intention, if they really think that this isn't getting her over as the face, then that speaks to an even bigger problem, I think. Well, anyway. I hope that Soraya has a stray bulletproof vest on or maybe can book the Secret Service for security because she's going to be, they're going to have pitchforks waiting for her after that interview. And and she didn't help herself later on. We're going we're, we're gonna to talk about the next couple of segments very briefly and get to the meat of the matter because this, again, is the go-home show for the pay-per-view. And what we've seen so far was the best of the 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 effort, the next match for the six-man tag team title that they had to do because they had to announce that everybody's favorite EVPs and trampoline cowboys are coming back at the pay-per-view. But it was Pac, Penthouse, and Felix against A.R. Fox and the Martins, Dante and Darius Martin. At the nine o'clock hour, on a national cable television program, certainly not going for star power. Dante Martin, everybody, a wonderful young prospect. His brother's been hurt. I think they said from a car wreck. Hadn't been on TV in forever. 
I've heard A.R. Fox's name. I may even have seen him in the past, but I can't remember exactly. And I don't think he's ever been on this television program. So they make a six-man tag team title match with three guys that two of one of them's never been there. One of them hadn't wrestled at all anywhere in months. And the other ones used sparingly as a underneath guy at best at the nine o'clock hour. The Yugoslavian judges gave this gymnastics expedition or exhibition a 9.8, I believe. But if I broke this match down in wrestling school for the students, it would take three hours. And anything less ain't going to do anybody else any good, so we will skip over it. But basically, at the end of the thing, they revealed that, oh, Saturday night, it'll be Pac, Penthouse, and Felix again against Twinkle Toes and the Buckaroos. Because now Tony has painted himself into a corner by indulging the whims of his EVPs that, okay, Harpo's hurt and can't do what he used to do. And the Buckaroos were getting a lot of heat because they didn't put FTR over because they were too jealous. So they could get together and they could cover for Harpo and they can have their six-man matches with all their friends where they do all their trampoline routines. But now he's got a six-man tag set of six-man tag team belts in the company. How many six-man tag teams? are there or that that anybody would give a shit about are there and after this long running program between the death triangle or the bermuda triangle or whatever their fucking name is and the elite where are they going to go next with that anyway that match and then the other page wrestled bandito because now we've completely Lucha the program up. I, I wrote, why not just air a test pattern at this point? <laughs> well, I, I want to say about the acrobatics too. I have to say one quick thing because I think you'll appreciate this with the six man and, you know, rating it nine out of 10 or whatever it is. Again, from the mouths of babes, my son sitting next to me innocuously, you know, he's not there to knock the show. He turns to me and he goes, daddy, this is just like the circus. <laughs> He really said that. And then he goes to me, I, I think this was during one of the dark matches. He actually goes, Daddy, why are those wrestlers wrestling little kids? That's what he said. And, and then he goes, why? At another point, he goes, why are the wrestlers so skinny? And this is a five-year-old kid. And, and you know, he had a great time. Not going to say he's not sitting there, you know, giving match, you know, star ratings to matches. Well, but, but no, uh, and also, you know, it, it gives a kid like that hope because he says, well, fuck, they're the same size as I am. I can do this one day. <laughs> Maybe. But I didn't mean to derail you there, but that. Well, no, well, believe me, this this program derailed me. Well, that's it. And, and as Brian said, one of his kids one time called it tricks. They do tricks. They don't do spots. They do tricks. Yeah, I guess. Um, so. that, yeah, that's a good description. <laughs> So, and then the aforementioned Soraya interview with Renee Moxlegood from the back. And by the way, old Sockface uh, pitched to the interview. Well, earlier today, Renee sat down with Soraya and they go to the fucking VTR and they're both standing up. <laughs> Just, that's a fucking indicative of <laughs> Sockface's announcing talent. 
so Soraya, basically short and sweet, she's very lucky to be cleared, wants to beat the best and is sick of all the back and forth. It's time to, there was no heartfelt statement here to redeem her in the hearts and minds of the fans or any kind of rebuttal that would have made anybody go, well, you know what? Come to think of it, fuck Britt Baker or anything. Just perfunctory at best. Did it, it, What were the people in the arena doing? Because they, they cheer when shit comes up from the acclaimed on the screen or whatever. Did they cheer when Soraya popped up? No, they didn't because whatever they're doing with Britt Baker is working because they had just seen the Britt Baker promo and they were cheering for that. They were all about that. And so now they're conditioned to go, well, you know, screw this other one. Like, I'm not, you, you know what I mean? Like, that's the attitude they're being given. And it almost seems like I've been thinking about that Britt Baker promo and you and you how you said maybe she just came up with it herself. And Tony just said, yeah, yeah, go do it. It feels like sometimes these these folks are just being allowed to say what they really feel, which is not always <laughs> the greatest thing to have. You know, the era of shoot promos, I think, has made us a little too comfortable with this idea. Sometimes you don't want the talent doing a promo saying their actual true feelings because it goes counter to what you're trying to present. Exactly. And as a matter of fact, since you, that is a perfect lead in to the, we'll skip over Tony Storm wrestled Anna Jay. By the way, on his, so it's a rib now. That's right. But we get to the last segment of the program and what you just said. And I know that, you know, I can see Britt Baker going up to, and I can see Britt Baker really thinking this and not having ulterior motives, but coming up with that promo and thinking, wow, this is really a great promo. I could lay the whole thing out right here and giving it to Tony. And Tony said, wow, that, that all sounds true. That sounds real. And yes, <laughs> It did. But, but, but Tony not having the experience or the knowledge as a booker to go, yes, that is all real and sounds true, and that's what you're supposed to do in wrestling, and that will also completely undermine the entire presentation of both these girls that I've done up till now because it will make them cheer for the one we want them to boo and, and boo the one that I just signed for a ridiculous amount of money. But nevertheless, so I can see that happening. But I think there was some ulteriorness going on in the main event segment. And I'll tell you, everybody knows that I am not the president of the Plumber Moxley fan club, right? He's a one-note guy. We talk about Pockets being a one-joke guy. Moxley is if I can go out and cut a promo about how I'm the baddest son of a bitch in the game and I drink blood and snap necks and crack bones and grind them to eat my bread and blah, blah, blah. And I'm addicted to pain. And then he can go out and have a match where he fights outside and he sells very little, including tire irons and hand grenades and bleeds somehow. And everybody takes a big dangerous bump. That's pretty much what you get. But this was supposed to be John Moxley, the AEW world champion, selling the main event of their pay-per-view in three days from that. And much like CM Punk has done uh, uh, several times over the last year that has led to big buy rates because he goes out there and he sells the issue and he sells the match. 
and he makes people more ill. And I'm not just going to say him, anybody that knows what the fuck they're doing and considers themselves a good promo. If you have this much time on a television program days before a pay-per-view and you do a promo and people are less interested in it in the match than they were before you did the promo, you did a shitty promo. And Moxley came out here and I thought two things and I'll give them both to you one at a time. The way this guy talks about himself and puts himself over in any situation, this promo or any other, if he didn't look like a fucking bum living under an overpass and you couldn't readily see video of him doing death matches in a barn with convicted felons and just physically he wasn't so sad the way he talks, you would be intimidated by him. If he looked like Dr. Death Steve Williams and could do that promo, or more importantly, if Dr. Death Steve Williams was himself in every way except he could talk like Moxley, then he would have been the biggest box office attraction in wrestling. But Moxley, he talks about himself like a million dollars. But unfortunately because he doesn't fit the visual casting requirement. He's just a guy playing a part he's created in his mind. But when he's trying to sell a match, when he's trying to make his opponent sound dangerous or the issue sound crucial or important or the increase anticipation in a match, if this was an example of it, then he's the shits. Either that or he's got the verbal equivalent or had the verbal equipment, equi equipment verbal equivalent of boo-boo job face. Because he talked about himself like a million dollars, but when he got to MJF, yeah, you're a good singer. You've had one win in six months, took the summer off. You beat my young boy. Here's the thing. Once again, people around the world beat my young boy. That sounds vaguely pornographic and perverted because this fucking clown, Moxley, is stuck in the mindset that everybody that he's speaking to on national American cable television knows that young boy is an, a preliminary or underneath or training talent in Japan. So a lot of people in fucking... Dayton somewhere think Moxley's got a young boy. What? The? Anyway, he knocked the ladder match finish where, which rightfully so we did too, where MJF got the chip. But instead of saying you orchestrated this convoluted plot where you could get the chip and the chance at the title without ever doing any work or sacrificing any of your physical he just said, yeah, they handed it to you. It was a shitty finish. And uh, and I'm not scared of you. So he just basically wiped his feet on MJF, his challenger in the main event of the, and not in the way that the, the baby face normally downplays or, or runs down the heel. You're a coward. You're a crook. You're a liar. All unsavory qualities but still one that 
Billy Badass might have, still fight. You know, he tore him down as any in the ultimate. The ultimate, isn't it ironic? Like rain on your wedding day. He actually said he sees MJF as a kid playing wrestler. This fucking plumber looking, buggy whipped armed, fucking pale skinned, balding headed, nondescript, potentially on the spectrum of some kind because of the things that he likes and the things that he involves himself in when he has options that he wouldn't have to involve himself in those things, except that he's demented. And he sees the one of the four or five guys in the business right now that are the future of the wrestling industry as a kid playing wrestler, when in actuality he's playing a part in his own rehabilitated mind that he's this tough guy. Does Moxley have an amateur wrestling background? Moxley comes from the mean streets of Cincinnati. Not exactly Hell's Kitchen, New York in the days of the Great Depression. I'm sure you can get in a lot of trouble in Cincinnati, but it's right up the road, and I haven't heard anybody talk about all the goddamn justifiable homicides or long prison stretches Mr. Moxley Good has fucking serve. So the point is the whole time Moxley was out there, he did his normal shit about himself. And then he tried to talk you out of being interested in the main event of the pay-per-view. And I'm, and Brian Solomon, I swear I'm going to give you a chance to speak here in a second, but then here comes just out of nowhere, Lee Moriarty and Stokely Hathaway and William, don't call me Billy Morrissey, and the other page, and the guns, and they jump Moxley again, as they've been told not to do. The firm, the, the group that MJF put together for three weeks until he fucking fired him. And then here comes MJF's music. And MJF is coming down the ramp with the game face on. And now what they've laid out is the heels are supposed to run at him, but he's supposed to be so determined he's just going to lay them all out and he's going to get in the ring and take care of this situation. And the first ones to feed him are the gun boys. Guys, I love you. Y'all have a tremendous upside in this business, gun boys. You're running to somebody, it's faker than a fucking football bat to run to the side of them and bump underneath their fucking punch. Run and take the punch full on. And don't try to get so pretty because it looked goofy. And then MJF got in the ring, kicked Morrissey in the balls, and then kicked, poked Paige in the eyes. And Paige was so fucking stupid when he got the eye poke. He didn't even know how to close his eyes and cover him up with his hands. And then he got the ball kick. Brian, you were... In the building, and I'm about to tell everybody why this was the case, but I think you will testify that much as I saw on television, this big babyface save of world champion John Moxley did not bring the house down a la Stone Cold Steve Austin hitting the ring on Raw in 1999, did it? No, not at all. Um, it sounded like they were inside of of a, a church or a cathedral or something. It was It was eerily quiet during a lot of it and i have to say first of all a couple of things to preface is by this point now i live 10 minutes away from the total mortgage arena 
So by this point, I was watching this in my living room because my son had had enough. We, <laughs> I'm not even kidding. We, we, we did not make it to the main event. I was watching it on TV because I zipped home. I really missed hardly anything, maybe a commercial break. And, um, you know, I, I'm going to preface it with this. After your very tactful and restrained assessment, I will say that I, I'm usually and very often a fan of Moxley. And I know, you know, you, you and Brian will want to kill me, but uh, I am. I, I happen to to like him a lot of the time, including his promos. I, I like I like him a lot. This was not his finest hour. And it was for the reasons that you're mentioning here, because, again, I thought the same thing. He's doing this promo where he is shitting on the creative of the company you know, it's this meta promo. He's not, he's shitting on MJF, not in the way, like you said, that a baby face should shit on a heel. He's, he's completely emasculating him and making him seem like he's not even a threat. And then he's, he's sort of joking. It seemed about like the, he was almost telling everybody, well, if they're going to have this guy beat me, he's a flop and he doesn't deserve it. And he hadn't done what I've done and just wait and see, it ain't going to work out. And then they'll have to come and call me back. Yeah. And it was almost like he was trying to say in a coded way, Hey, you know what? After I said all this, if, and when he does beat me on Saturday, you know, it's fake because I could totally yeah. beat him. <laughs> yes. I could, I could totally beat him. Right, he my amateur point. record of zero and zero. And then no one, uh, no one has even explained why, because I was scratching my head over this, why would the firm even still be attacking Moxley if they're not even with MJF anymore? They have no benefit to gain to it now. What's their They've motivation? Been, they were trying to protect him from They that. should be saying, yeah, we hope Moxley kicks the shit out of you, you prick. Right. Yeah, it was not not well received. Uh, they were very quiet again for the promo. I mean, you could tell that even on TV. It was not it, like I said, I like a lot of his promos. This was not a good promo. Well, this but he, not- here's here's the thing is when MJF comes down and yes, this is one of those things that verbally somebody can lay it out and say, oh boy, this is going to be great. And when you come down there, MJF, no, here's the thing. The group of heels is not over. Stokely Hathaway and the firm as a group it's not you're not talking about the four horsemen and JJ Dillon in there beating somebody up within an inch of their life. You're talking about a group that's been together for six weeks that was all guys that have been there and they've done practically nothing with them or nothing's that's gotten over. And suddenly they think they're going to be this destructive force when they're kicking the shit out of Moxley, who never sells anything anyway, and fucking, you know, they don't see that as a threat. And then here comes MJF. It's not what the crowd want. They don't want to see MJF saving John Moxley. Even if it's a swerve where now he's going to still promo him and say, I hate you and I'm going to beat you and everything, but I want to do it myself. Whatever the fuck. The heel group wasn't over. It was confusing to the fans. The crowd doesn't want to see MJF save anybody except his own worthless ass. But then MJF does a promo. And then it started getting better because he fired him up and he promoted Moxley as a, now, meanwhile, f- the five heels, let's wait a minute, both guns, the other page, Moriarty with the green hair, W Morrissey, we are great value, Kevin Nash and Stokely. So six adult men took one bump each for MJF and then just ran off. 
and left. Okay, I'll buy that because now we get to see MJF and Moxley face to face. And MJF actually tried to put Plumber Moxley over a little bit in a heel fashion, but then was still making the point that he was going to take the belt and it was his time or whatever the fuck. And did you notice Moxley laying there selling the the shit that he just got kicked out of him. He's laying there on the fucking bottom rope and he kind of looks up at Regal standing there in the ring and gives an eye roll while yes. he's getting promoted by MJF. Again, more boo-boo face. Almost like somebody, you know what? Moxley, we're not only going to beat you, we're going to have him piss in your mouth while you're down there. Yeah. So he's eye rolling at MJF while he's cutting the promo. And also, at that point in time, when MJF making a save hadn't gotten over, now MJF has to do this promo from scratch, and it's already been a long segment. And Moxley has to listen. Regal has to stand there. I mean, okay, at least finally MJF took his promo home, and Moxley starts talking again. Instead of leaving it with that, with MJF's go-home line and then getting their face-to-face shot with Regal in the background, fucking Moxley starts to, in his nasally meandering tone, he answers MJF back, he forgets what day the show is on, and this is oh, whatever difference, Saturday, Sunday, whatever, and then when he finishes belittling MJF again, he flips him the microphone like he's a chump, and starts to walk off away from him, and then realizes, oh God, they told me, and the truck is expecting we should have a face-to-face shot at the end of this thing, because Regal's got to be in between us for that three-shot. So he, t- Moxley almost gets out of the ring, and then turns back around and goes back up face-to-face so they can get that shot. Yeah. And the only thing, I will say this, and I'm going to let you jump in, the only thing that was really positive in a business way about increasing interest in the pay-per-view tonight or Saturday night as it was on Wednesday when they did this was that last shot there's Moxley and there's MJF face to face and there's Regal in the middle in the back of them and that's where it hit me if it ends up that Moxley Loses the belt to MJF because Regal turns around and stabs Moxley in the back. Then maybe this may have been worth it. But otherwise, anything else that happens besides Regal stabbing Moxley in the back and MJF winning has been a complete waste of fucking time. And I, because I don't know that just beating Moxley can make anybody or get anybody more over. I th- I say if if Regal does the the dirty deed and you've got that would be a real potential Bobby Heen and Nick Bockwinkel combination, not like Twinkle Toes and Don Fallis the Invisible Hand Job, but two real professionals. That you'd have something to work with there. What do you think, Brian Solomon? Well, you know we're going to be proven either right or wrong by the time this comes out, but I do think that that is where they're going with this. I I got that sense that it's going to be, you know, this is like a Rock 1998 kind of thing where you think he's turning face, but he goes back to being an even worse heel than before, and then 
Regal kind of saying, yes, you did exactly what I wanted you to do all those years ago. You proved it to me. You are the villain, you know, that kind of thing. And now he's going to be on his side. I mean, that would be the logical way, <laughs> way to do it. I don't know if that's what they'll do, but that seems to be how they'll do it. Um, I also noticed the confusion with Moxley, how he he stepped back into the three shot, like you said. And 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 what was hilarious to me was because, you know, WWE does those show closing things all the time that he couldn't even stand there long enough for the show to go off the air. It was, it was almost like, you know, I mean, you know, when you watch this, that they're not just standing there looking at each other for hours, they eventually have to go home, but they usually wait till the show is over. Whereas here it was just like, all right, I'm done staring at you now. I kind of want to go take a shower. And they just, and he just left and walked off. Um, forgetting the day of the show i mean uh yes i'm the wwe shill but if if someone had done that in a wwe promo and i mean not i don't i'm not even talking if about this had been a smoky mountain wrestling television program we were just running the knoxville coliseum that friday night and my main event had jacked off in an interview like this and obviously showed that he didn't really want to be bothered and wasn't apparently real happy about whatever the fuck's going to go on i'd have fired his ass yeah, and and it's not even a Vince thing to me. I think even I can confidently say, having spent time around both of them, I think you'd see this even under Triple H, where if somebody did that during a WWE go home show towards a pay per view, I'm not saying they'd be fired for it, but there would be hell to pay. I mean, that would be that would that's a major no no, and there's a reason you never see it because people know that that's not something you do. It sounds like something small, but it undermined the whole thing. It forced MJF to break character for a split second. It was uh, it was really just a major faux pas, shall we say? So uh, I asked you earlier: Are we going to do we have the information on the ratings? Where did they start and where did they finish? And, and this is an important television program because Full Gear is one of their their big four, right? The big four pillars. Mm -hmm. um, so where, where did they, uh, what happened this past Wednesday night? What happened is they were down. Um, I, I'm looking at it right now. They, it looks like here, they, this is the go-home episode for Full Gear of AEW Dynamite. Drew 818,000 viewers on TBS, which was down from 930,000 the week Oof. before, which was a 12% drop. And look, I know it's 2022, it's not 1998, but I still can't get it over the fact that we're looking at this going, yeah, we drew 818,000 <laughs> viewers. That would have been unfathomable. It's not just a wrestling problem. It's a TV problem. I mean, it's, it's across the board with TV in general. Well, but, but it, it, in this case, when the show loses 150 something thousand average viewers from one week to the next, while they're going home for a pay-per-view, that's kind of a wrestling or a specific company problem. But do you have the quarters? Okay. So I'm looking at the quarter hour breakdowns now for the, for that dynamite episode, the go home show. And what I'm seeing is uh, the opening tag team match that we talked about Danielson and Claudio against Jericho and Sammy they started with 916,000 ooh and that is about 150,000 down from where they usually start to begin with 
at least it's over the average for the show, which of course shows <laughs> it shows you that once again, they're going to be, we know how the story ends. They're going to be bleeding right. viewers through the show. But uh, yeah, cause so, okay, we go to the next quarter, which is the last third of the match plus Moxley MJF video package, which I'll be honest, I don't even remember seeing. I don't know <laughs> what I was doing, but it did 854,000. So, Ooh, so I didn't expect them to lose that much with Danielson and Jericho both in the in the ring at the same time at the start. But nevertheless, uh, quarter three. Well, that means let's not forget that means that that match itself lost 60,000 viewers like yeah. during during the course of that match. <laughs> 60,000 people said, nope, not for me. Next, the acclaimed video and promo and Anthony Bowens versus Swerve Strickland did 829,000. Yeah, so yeah. we again we've dropped about another 20 25,000 exactly. Mhm. Jade Cargill, Nyla Rose promotional video and the Samoa Joe promo with Powerhouse Hobbs and Wardlow, the brawl plus Britt Baker's promo. This this is a huge stacked quarter hour, right? Guess what they did? 792,000. Oh. All right. Well, because again, that was a jam-packed quarter hour. You've taken them out of the arena. It's a lot of features, a lot of stuff. That's you're gonna people sometimes the casual fan and the people who switch around or whatever or don't stay, they're gonna overlook shit like that. So that's why you try to intersperse those things as best you can instead of bunching them all up together. But go ahead. Okay. Well, so, yeah, nine nine o'clock with the death triangle and the death to ratings triangle. Well, they actually gained some viewers for that. What? Um, they gain. I mean, they gained an. I mean, the amount of people would be a small, you know, crowd that you could fit inside of an arena. But they gained about nine thousand viewers for the death triangle versus Dante and Barrius Martin and AF Fox. So they were up to eight hundred and one thousand. Okay, well, well, then the test is because they tune in at the nine o'clock hour, right? So did they stay? No. What was the next quarter <laughs> when no, they what? saw that match? They said, "Okay." So what happened is it's that nine o'clock curiosity, like you said, and then you get to the next quarter hour, and it goes right back to where it was. It goes down to seven hundred and ninety thousand, which is for the Ricky Starks promo, Ethan Page versus Bandito, Jungle Boy Luchasaurus package. And the Soraya promo, all in that 15 minutes. One, two, three, four, five, six. So we're going home the last two quarters. Okay. We are continuing our precipitous <laughs> drop. Tony Storm versus Anna Jay and the post-match, 755,000. Ouch. And that's the lowest quarter hour of the show because it, it bumps up in the, it, towards the end. Well, and I was about to say, what could they come back up to for MJF and Moxley's showdown of indifference? So I, I will say it, it's good that they actually gained viewers in the last segment. That's not typically what's <laughs> been happening. I mean, that's what's supposed to happen. Well, I, I, that's the thing is they teased him MJF instead of the EVPs. And people like those MJF initials better than they like the EVPs. But he's still he's not a mirror. He's not Merlin the Magician. So the Moxley promo, the firm attack, MJF run-in promo, 809,000 viewers. So he brought 54,000, they, I should say, the MJF, the generational talent, and Plumber Moxley, the disinterested 
wannabe uh, brought him 54,000 people back. Looks like, you know, honestly, the one thing you can say good about this is that they held more of their audience from start to finish than they have over the last couple of months. One show, they lost almost 300,000 viewers uh, or more, more than 300,000. And that's usually when they'd put the, the Cucamonga kids on last or whatever. But in this case, maybe it's just that a lot of the casual fans, the extra 150,000 that are usually there at the start, just decided after the last few weeks, fuck it, we don't even need to start this procedure. We know how it's going to end up, and we'll eliminate the middleman and just tune out before we tune in. Right, because if you look at beginning and end, so they started with 916,000, and by the end, with all the peaks and valleys, they were at 809,000. So what is that? Like a hundred and. 7,000. Yeah. But in the middle there, they got down, well, actually, yeah, only 755 after the the quarter number seven, after the people had seen all the crap they could stand. That's where they were until MJF and Moxley came along. We'll see what, I wonder what the late buys on this pay-per-view are going to be after that stunning promo performance from Plumber Moxley. Well, I just want to, I have to ask you a question because you've been in this scenario. Um, What would the reaction be like? Let's say you're in a a meeting with Vince. It's like a, you know, all hands on deck kind of meeting and somebody informs him, hey, Vince, we had a segment and this is during the period when you're working there, Jim. We had a segment where on Monday Night Raw, where we did 755,000 viewers. (laughs) How did that go? Walk me through that. I, 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 it, it didn't happen. And I can't, I think at that time, if any part of Monday Night Raw, including the fucking commercials, had done 755,000 viewers, nobody would have told Vince. We'd have just run and hid or left and he'd have never seen us again. I don't think um, any, I think he would have been put in jail for murder, probably. If he could have caught us, I would have done my best to make sure that didn't happen. No, that's what I'm saying. I mean, what was, I can't remember what the numbers were in 1997 for that live wire on Saturday mornings that didn't even have any wrestling matches on it. I don't know that they were lower than that. I mean, I know we're in a new era when it comes to television viewership and et cetera, but, but no, that's, it's never even thought of if. If Jim Crockett had heard that we did 755,000 people on the Saturday night or Sunday night TBS show at 6 o'clock Eastern, 3 o'clock Pacific, he would have fucking fired people. So the whole thing has changed, yes, obviously, but by their own standards of the last few months, this this shows there was no interest in this pay-per-view going home because they've pretty much determined that all the good shit in AEW is going on, the real fights in the locker room, and we don't get to see the people we want to see anymore. Yeah, the the downturn has been dramatic. I was at uh, the first Grand Slam, and I know, you know, maybe it's not fair to compare it to the hottest and biggest show that they ever had, but I can tell you, I was at that, you know, Arthur Ashe Stadium there, 20,000 people, the largest non-WWE crowd in New York City in 60 years, I was there. 
And the it is so dramatic. I don't even just mean the numbers, but the energy, everything, the vibe, the momentum is so different. I was at Mohegan Sun recently. I was at this show in Bridgeport. It is night and day between those days and now. I was even at the February 2022 because I'm a glutton for punishment. I was at the <laughs> February, the last time they were in Bridgeport, and the crowd was twice the size as this one. And and I know they're oversaturating the market. I'll agree with that. But you should be able to run the same building twice in a year and do well both of those times. <laughs> because I can tell you, nobody is coming to Bridgeport to see a show that doesn't live in the immediate area. But trust me when I tell you that. So they're drawing from the same base of people in the outer, greater, like Fairfield County, Bridgeport area. And those people just simply were not interested enough to come back nine months later. I've just, again, when you said, well, you ought to be able to run a town twice a year. I'm thinking of all the decades when, when cities and towns across America, smaller than Bridgeport is now, ran every week. But nevertheless, speaking of running, what we're going to do is now that we have run down the preamble to full gear, the folks will never know it, but we're going to take a little break. And then we are going to watch Full Gear while some of the preparatory work is done on the audio that we have just recorded. And then either you and I, or potentially Brian Last and I, or possibly me, myself and I, somebody's going to come back and finish this program in some fashion once we know what the hell's going to happen. Did I articulate that? Uh, so that the viewers can pick up what I'm laying down. Can they smell what the corny is cooking? The viewers or even the listeners, I think, would be able to pick up the on viewers, it. the listeners. Well, you know, hey, a lot of you people, you may be viewing Travis Heckle's fine artwork and you're listening to us with, you know, with all of your uh, uh, equipment on, and including, as a matter of fact, perfect segue, you're listening to us on the best stocking stuffers out there this Christmas season, the Raycon wireless earbuds. That's what you're listening to us on the wireless earbuds. You're looking at the incredible artwork of Travis Heckle, and you are smelling. I know exactly what you're don't say. Don't think that in your minds, folks. You are smelling a holiday dinner being cooked. That's why you're appealing to all your senses at the same time. You, you, you got your sight, right, with Travis's artwork. You got your hearing with the Raycons. You got your smell with the delicious dinner. What do you need to stick in your mouth, Brian Solomon? Boy, stick if another, I had a, I was going to say if, oh, sorry. Well, go, I was just going to say you can stick another set of Raycons in your mouth. What do you want to stick in your mouth? I don't know. I mean, if I, I was going to say if I had a dollar every time somebody asked me that. Well, you'd have $26. Maybe. But, and now, and I'm leaving one out, too. Now, we got the hearing, we got the sight, we got the smell, we got the taste. There's a fifth sense, isn't there? Like there's a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. Well, I'll tell you what. You can trip out in a heartbeat listening to the Raycon wireless earbuds, folks. Again, the premium sound. Listen to Dark Side of the Moon and take some drugs. That's what you can do with Raycon wireless earbuds. They, they'll no. just... They'll transport you to places you've never been before. You don't even yeah. need to take the drugs. 
I think that's a better message to send. We don't want to be encouraging people to be, you know, taking drugs on. This no, show. no, just drink heavily. And also, <laughs> folks, you can you can listen to your favorite podcasts like me and old Solomon Grundy over there, or you can listen to. The only thing you don't have to listen to, for example, is your wife yelling at you and nagging at you because these are earphone earbuds that when you stick them in your ear, you're going to hear what you want to hear and you're not going to hear all of this outside noise. But they also have the buttons, so if you need to listen to the sound of an oncoming train about to run you down, you'll hear that just before the moment of impact so you can say your prayers and potentially take your vitamins. Now, you can find Raycons in stores right now, like the Kohl's or the Walmart, but you're always going to get the best deal when you use my link, buyraycon, that's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N, buyraycon.com slash J-C-E. That's what you need to do because if you go there right now and do that thing that you do, then you're going to get 20% off site-wide. That's 20% off any Raycon product, which almost never happens. Or if you go for one of the exclusive holiday bundles, let's say you want to spread joy and cheer, spread your happiness and your contentedness all over the, the world and give other people these fine earbuds, and you get a holiday bundle, you can save 30% off of those by Raycon.com slash JCE. You don't want stems and wires hanging out of your ears. These things are sleek and stylish. They come in a range of colors to match anyone's style or complexion or whatever you're going to match when you stick shit in your ears. And, folks, again, 20% off anything around the site, 30% off the exclusive holiday bundles. Raycon is spreading cheer and joy all over the world this holiday season. Brian, right now, you probably got some in your ears right now that you've forgotten about. They've probably been there for months and you didn't even remember them because they're so comfortable. And just every once in a while, you hear some guy talking to you and you think you're just mentally deranged, but it's really just those Raycons you never took out. I'm still pretty sure I'm mentally deranged, but it's not related to the 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 headphones on my on my ears. Well, and, and the Raycon website, folks, also offers, even though they're so inexpensive, you don't need this, they offer the buy now, pay later options. They have an option you can buy now and you can pay later. If you want to buy now and not pay at all, then you're going to be in trouble. They're going to have some fucking people come and see you about that. And then if you think that having earbuds stuck in your ears is a problem, wait till you see what else is going to be stuck where it's going to be stuck. If you don't pay these people, they're not fucking around. Folks, buyraycon.com slash JCE for the holiday season. Okay, through the magic of post-production and technology and things and such of that nature, we have taken an extended break in this program, but we are now back because Full Gear, which was extended in its own right, is finally over with. My God, I shaved twice, celebrated two birthdays during the pay-per-view, and I am joined again by Solomon Grande, Brian Solomon, the news director of the Wrestling News, as well as the rest of his sterling 
curriculum that he possesses to talk about professional wrestling. Brian Last, we are hoping, is going to be back on the drive-through this week. And Brian Solomon, Brian, you saw this program too, as well as I did, right? I did to the bitter end. Yes. Bitter, bitter, bitter. And I'll tell you what, the best move that I have made, I don't know, in the last several months, uh, everybody knows I got the spectrum problem with the spectrum internet and the spectrum cable. Spectrum's a shitty company. It doesn't know how their shit works. But I haven't been able to order a pay-per-view in months and months and months. It just, every time I try to, it says, well, you call such and such number. Well, I don't want to talk to these people anymore. So I've just, I've been watching the the, the cock for the WWE stuff. And I got Bleacher Report last time for AEW. But on Bleacher Report, besides the fact that I am sitting here tied to my little tiny 24-inch computer screen or whatever it is. And if you don't watch it live, you have to wait 24 hours, That whatever that deal is. And the fact that there's no way I knew ahead of time that I could subject myself to sitting up until midnight or past on a Saturday, skip Svengooly family night with Stacy and Harley Quinn, and watch this thing as it unfolded where I couldn't skip past the comedic interludes, then I was gonna I was gonna go out of my mind. So I did the next best thing. I had Stacy call Spectrum. And she actually got somebody that was able to enable our pay-per-view function. So I recorded this freaking thing. And then instead of ruining my Saturday night, I got up early and I've ruined my Sunday morning but I'm ready to talk about full gear. And I understand before the pay-per-view, they had an hour of bad matches with the nobodies before the pay-per-view actually started, which again, cannot make it easy on the poor people <laughs> who had to go there live. It's fucking newer. I guarantee you most of the people in that building traveled an hour to get there if they only lived 10 miles away, right? You've been to Newark. Yes, on occasion when I can't help it. Yeah, so it ain't easy to get in there and park and boom, and then they got to get, and the the matches started at 7 o'clock, pay-per-view started at 8, so they've been in the building since 6. That means they left their homes at 5 o'clock if if they were lucky, and, and the thing was over at fucking midnight. Yeah, that's so, like a five-hour night of wrestling. But they, so they, they had the uh, on the pre-show they had the the bad comedy match with Puddin' Gang and Pockets, and they had the fake Japanese match where they just let each other chop and kick and hit each other and trade moves with Eddie Kingston and some feller, some and feller. then some feller, whoever I I didn't catch that's, it. That's thirty-year veteran. June Akiyama, you're talking well, about. Well, there he is. Glad to see he's still getting work. And then the pay-per-view started. And the announce team, Jim Ross, Taz, and Sockface, even though Ian Riccoboni, they tease us. Again, Tony Khan is a teaser, baby. He's a teaser. He will just show us enough of people who are actually professional and talented and good at their jobs 
that we want to see more of them, and then he'll take them away from us. Ian Riccoboni is in that building. Ian Riccoboni, I'm sure, is available to work for a billionaire full-time, yet the fucking guy with the sock on his head, actually, it looks more like a dominatrix's girdle on Halloween. He's running this desk because he's friends with the buckaroos. Kevin Kelly spends half his life in Japan and I'm sure would be available to work for a billionaire on national cable television. But we've got a guy that started out and still should be calling matches in his mother's garage. So we start out with the cage match confrontation between Dino Douche and Jungle Jack Perry. And to be honest, normally I'm like cage match on first. What the, but in this case, let's get it over with. The crowd showed more emotion than jungle boy did as he casually wandered to the ring to face this tattooed muscular giant in this ridiculous paleolithic era mask. And I don't, Brian, here's the thing. Um, they tried to start with what made sense, a fast little baby face against a big, strong heel. And when the problem is when they do choreographed shit with Dino, he's so awkward and plodding. He doesn't work like a giant, but he can't work like a small guy, even though he tries to. So he ends up just, it, it, he's just there. It's like an advanced robot that has been programmed to let the little guy run by him and catch him every once in a while. Do you, does he ever kick into a fucking gear as impressive as he looks standing there? I, yeah, I think honestly, you know, the, a match like this and, and even the feud in general, this is to me, cause, cause I think jungle boy or Jack Perry, as they're now seemingly transitioning to calling him, you know, he's got major star potential, I think. And a lot of people have said that. He, yes, he's weak on promos and all that stuff. And I think this is sort of like, we've got to get past this feud. We've got to get, you know, you're, you're going to, obviously you're going to beat Luchasaurus because because there's no upside in him really as a major main eventer. We'll get past that and then we'll do better things with Jungle Boy. Like that's kind of how I see this is just, let's get this feud out of the way. Let's get him out of the, you know, Luchasaurus phase of his character and move on you know but we've been one for three years now for him to move a jungle boy he i mean brian last and i've talked about this you may have heard it um uh, I, I may have you know when you were studying us um <laughs> but he has said in the past he runs away from promos and he has tried to do them and, and they haven't been good. He's got a wonderful look for an underdog baby face that fights from underneath the little guy that finally triumphs over adversity, blah, blah, blah. And as we've said, when he's got somebody in the ring that can lead him to have a logical, sensible match instead of the trampoline stuff, he, he can follow it, but he hadn't had very many of those. And he's had a lot of matches with all of his other friends that do no good for him because they don't, all they do is teach him bad habits. So anyway, you know, the, 
And again, Dino's just, nobody gives a shit about him. There's Christian Cage on the outside of the ring in a sling. He was the most interesting thing about this whole thing when he was coming out doing promos on television, which we now barely, if ever, hear anymore. So, and then, okay, I always complain about there's no blood in the cage matches in the WWE, so they're going to give us some over here. And boy, again... I don't know whether to feel bad for Jungle Boy or whether to laugh at it because Dino runs his head in the cage and then the camera goes tight on Dino and wide on the crowd and avoids Jungle Boy for almost a minute. I put a watch on it. And when they finally went back to a wide shot of the ring, he was still down there trying to gig. Mm. I mean, it was like, what are you drilling for oil? Here's the, he's obviously not done it a lot. He's not experienced with it. Then they, okay, now, big cage match. You can't even stick your head under the ring. You're in the cage in front of God and everybody. So, unfortunately, this combined with the fact that I believe he was, I won't say scared, not trying to not, he was a little intimidated by the sword. And that's usually what happens if, if somebody's inexperienced and is put in a position in a high-profile deal where they got to get some and they don't want anybody to see them. They they generally make the mistake of going too far. Hence, Paul E. cracking me over the head on TBS with the fucking cell phone, and it looked like I'd been run through a goddamn meat grinder because I was scared to death I wasn't going to get enough, right? But when you're scared of the actual process, intimidated of the actual process, you're there for a while and you don't get much because <laughs> I wish we had video for once. I know we do radio, but I wish we had video. The guys, at least the heels in the locker room, used to have a fucking way that we would make fun of the baby faces when they didn't like to get juice and they had to get some that night. A guy would sit there and he'd have his thumb and finger together and he'd have his left hand around his right wrist and he'd be fucking taking it up to his head like he was going to touch himself with a goddamn radioactive missile and uh, yeah this is so and so getting color so he he got a pap smear as we used to call it and it came a little bit better after a minute or two by the end of the match it was pretty much gone but This was the thing. Dino was beating up Jungle Boy in a plodding fashion, doing moves to him. It didn't start and finish and tell a fucking coherent story, and Dino's just awkward. He's a moose on ice. So finally, did you love the pickpocket spot? Yes, I was going to mention it if you didn't. It, it It was one of my favorite moments. He was so good, just kind of slinking in there. <laughs> it was amazing, just and his facials, just everything. Just it was almost like a something out of a silent movie or something. He I just know. Slunk in there and gently lifted the keys out of the ref's uh, pocket. It, yeah, it was great. Yeah, suddenly Christian Cage becomes Five Finger Freddy. <laughs> so, folks, for those of you who didn't see this, and believe me, you you count yourself amongst the lucky ones. There's two referees, one in the ring and one outside the ring has cage has door, the key to the door of the cage. So while Dino's arguing with the referee in the ring, the referee outside the ring is intently peering through the cage, looking at it, and Christian sidles up next to him, and the fucking key, the lanyard that the key is on is hanging out of this fucking guy's pocket about three feet and Christian just snatches it and walks off. And then the referee on the floor turns around a second later, like, Hey, did something happen? 
So Christian goes and unlocks the door, and insecurity runs down and grabs Christian. But now, Dino and Jungle Boy, and this is going to be a theme, ladies and gentlemen. Count how many times over the course of this night I say, and then they go to the floor. They leave the cage, which has now been unlocked, and go so they can go out and fight on the floor in a cage match. In the first match of the night, certainly it's not going to happen again later on. Dino pulls a table out from under the ring and puts it through the cage door into the cage. And then he takes forever to go under the ring and find and pull out and toss into the cage two chairs. The guy's in a fight. His opponent, Jungle Boy, is bloody and helpless laying on the floor in front of him. But this fucking moron has completely brought the match to a halt to find and sort furniture and ignore the guy that he's in the fight with. So I couldn't take any more at this point. I fast-forwarded through all the garbage spots with the furniture, which the, the, the every once in a while I'd stop, and the pace was like a snail on Soma's. They're just... And we all know it's not going to be over until somebody breaks the table, right? Because it's already set up. So finally, Jungle Boy comes off the top of the cage with an elbow drop and puts Dino Douche through the table and then doesn't pin him. He gets a snare trap on him and Dino taps out. What the, what? Is it drugs? Is it insanity? Is it carbon monoxide poisoning? Who's doing these finishes? Yeah, that didn't make sense to me either. I, I was thinking that, and I thought it, I know we'll get to it later on too, but even in the match with Acclaimed versus Swerve in Our Glory, where you have your, your finish, right? Keith Lee leaves him in the ring. He should be dead in five <laughs> seconds. And they do this whole chain wrestling sequence. Why? <gasps> Doesn't make sense, right? The, the, the elbow through the table, which, by the way, it looked for a second like it wasn't going to break. It was actually a little scary for a second, but that was... Your finish, right? There's your finish, right? And 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 then the one thing that the fucking big guy's losing, he might have an out that. Well, my God, the kid came off the fucking roof and fucking put me through a goddamn table, and then he just turns around and gets a submission hold on the fucking guy, and he taps out. Oh, so they had a twenty minute match, and they risked their necks to have a not good match and set up one five second spot that everybody would remember. And then, okay, now let's just get out of it. I do like jungle boy though. I have to say like he, and I know, I know his promos are not good, but he, he had, he's very likable and he's got a natural, he actually comes across better when he's just speaking like at the press scrum, when he was just speaking as himself He seems much more comfortable. I mean, obviously, you can't really do that on a wrestling show, but he just seems like a a natural speaker unless you give him lines that he has to say, and then he just freezes up and can't do it. Uh, Maybe if he's not comfortable with public speaking, maybe he should go into, I don't know, uh, accounting or something. I guess. Anyway. Uh, so di- they had a long masturbatory video on the EVPs with no explanation whatsoever of where they've been. And 
again, this was brought up, I think, earlier in, in this program, possibly, since we did part of it yesterday, that a lot of people just out there don't know what the fuck's going on unless they live on the Internet. But nevertheless, it was time for the World Six-Man Tag Team Championship. Penthouse and Felix and Pac. They call them the Death Triangle. I'm going to start calling them the Bermuda Triangle because every time they have a match, they get lost. And they are facing the returning conquering heroes, Twinkle Toes and the Buckaroos. And all right, here's my thought on what we've got here. We know that AEW started out with a steady audience of what about seven, eight hundred thousand? They got a, you know, their biggest audience the first week, but for a couple of years it was a million or a little more if they hot shot some kind of major show on television, and seven hundred fifty so at the at the worst when that's the base audience for the tomfoolery amongst the the buckaroos and their ilk. And then there's about 100 or 150,000 floaters that will start the program, but as we've seen from the ratings over weeks and weeks, not necessarily finish it. And then there was a couple hundred thousand that CM Punk brought by himself from the either the other uh, the other companies, the WWE's fans, or the disaffected fans that don't watch the WWE anymore since Punk's not there. Who knows? And those are about the quantities. And you can kind of tell by where they are and what the venue is. And this was the pay-per-view, highest prices, you know, major metropolitan city, easy to fly into. So those are these are the dedicated and faithful. And they're going to go fuck CM Punk because they like seeing that the their little friends, their little buddies from Twitch or whatever are back in control. Now, next week in Chicago, it may be a different story because now they'd be going into enemy territory. And I bet you that many of those people probably in Chicago had tickets if they were on sale before this whole thing happened. So we'll see what the reaction is, but you can kind of see the, the the quantities now. They got one guy that could bring a sizable segment of the WWE's audience or ex-audience to their company, but he got run off by the, the EVPs and their base that they had that hasn't grown in three years. And then there's a bunch of people flipping back and forth going, what the fuck's going on? But it's kind of settling down, quantifying itself at this point, isn't it? Yeah, because that's what's left. And I kept thinking that, like, the people that are watching this now are the people that were on the side of the elite through the whole thing. So you're going to get a lot of bias. I thought it was so ironic to me. Like you said, there was the fuck CM Punk chant. And I'm thinking all these years of fans hijacking shows <laughs> by chanting, CM Punk in support of CM Punk over and over and over again. Yeah. If there was any time 
that you would have loved to see it and where it would have actually been entertaining. It would have been during this match, but instead they're chanting fuck CM Punk, which is wild to me. I mean, my, I don't know. I don't even know what to say about it. Is it the fickleness of the fans? Is it the encouragement of the bucks, which was apparently happening? Is it? The oh fact yeah. They, that, they were egging it on in the building. I mean, I uh, do think, I do think that punk, you know, and I know not everybody agrees with me on this, but I think that punk damaged a lot of goodwill, even with people who did support him, because here's the thing. I agree with a lot of the points that he was making and the frustration. Obviously, there was a lot of stuff going on that would piss somebody off behind the scenes. But I'm not so sure that airing it out in that press scrum in front of everybody with the (laughs) boss sitting right next to you was the best way to do it. And I think there's some people that even agree and sympathize with him that were like kind of turned off by what he did. I don't know, though. I've been in that position. Well, I've been in that position where you just have all you can stand of a fucking insufferable douchebag. But nevertheless, speaking of insufferable douchebags, let's move on to this match. They had the dramatic milk of the EVP's music and then a video on the screen of shit they had written about themselves and their wayward sons, and they will carry on. They, in their minds and in the universe of their small little clique of stooges and sycophants, Cutlet and Knock It Off and Phallus, they, these three think that they're the shit. They think that they are fucking superstars. And then here came Tony's dipped in his pocket again. Here comes the opening strains of Carry On My Wayward Son by Kansas. And they say that I'm behind the times on my musical taste. Tony had to pony up to fucking Kansas and or their record company to indulge these fucking twats their goddamn wayward son entrance and their big return. And so here they come with Cutlet and Knock It Off and Phallus, the guys who built the company and the ones whose pettiness and self-indulgent masturbatory fantasies of themselves are going to tear it down. And the corpse referee was in charge of the action. It had all the ingredients of an indie-rific spectacle. And the fans that were there loved those fucking dorks. And then the bell rang. And we already knew what it was going to be. And all six of these guys only ever have one match. And they do the same shit every time. And to be honest, if I stop to break down how stupid and phony each of these middle school cheerleading routines were, it would take three hours and people would be bored. So I will just... And there was an AEW botches on Twitter. Catch them while they last, folks. Um, put up a great segment of this thing set to yakety sax, and it it fit. It wasn't speeded up. It just looked like it. I will say it was unwatchable to anybody that's ever been a fan of pro wrestling or considered themselves a professional in this industry. And then Felix hit Twinkle Toes in the head with a hammer and beat him one, two, three. Did I miss any nuances of this contest, Brian Solomon? I think the only nuance you missed is just the fact of how confusing it all was. And I don't even just mean the fact that they're doing their usual match and that's confusing enough. And yes, they have their same 
pet referee who basically just lets them do whatever they want in every match. But it was this whole idea where, <laughs> and we talked, you guys have talked about it, where they can't figure out if they want to be faces or heels, where you've got, you've got Don Callis there with them and he's putting them over on commentary like a heel manager would do. They're supposed to be, I guess, I don't know, the, fa- the crowds are cheering for them. And then on the other side, you have a team that's apparently made up of a combination of faces and heels who are, you know, disagreeing with each other. And it, and it just creates this. And every once in a while, they, they want to use the hammer, but sometimes they disagree on whether the hammer should be used. Right. And then somebody said next to me, I, I went, because the best way to watch these things is with a bunch of friends so you could actually kind of laugh and, and, and wait, enjoy wait, their wait company. You've got a bunch of friends. <laughs> well, some people take pity on me, you know, uh, and they and they'll occasionally invite me out because they know, you know, that I'm usually stuck at home with my kids and they try Actually, to they they invite you out <laughs> and then go over to your house. But nevertheless, <laughs> but but I mean, one guy said to me, you know, I think it's really funny that they're making such a big deal out of the timekeepers little hammer. And, you know, back in the day, you had Triple H hitting people with a sledgehammer, <laughs> uh, you know, and of course, it was that, a little tiny ball peen hammer with decorative gold plating on it. Right. But I mean, in fairness, of course, we all know that the sledgehammer would have actually killed somebody if you hit somebody like that. So maybe the timekeeper's hammer makes more sense. But but it's hard. These matches are hard to follow. And I have to say, I could hear your head exploding from <laughs> from Connecticut when. They announced that they were going to have a best of seven oh, series. Good well, Lord. That's, the, that's the best part of it. Uh, it just well, as I had written, this match and the people in it are the reason why AEW is doomed. They've announced they're going to do this seven. Uh, remember the best of seven series with Nikita Koloff and Magnum TA in the summer of 86 for the U.S. title? You know what the big deal was about that? You didn't see all seven of them on television. They were put in major arenas. You had to buy a ticket to see most of them. I think they aired. Oh, God, I may be telling a lie, but I think they aired either two of them or one of them in parts of another one to make people interested. And it was a fucking big promotion of the whole deal. But they didn't just have the same match on TV. Every week for seven weeks in a fucking row with these clowns. This this shit appeals to a small but very dedicated audience of people who don't like wrestling. They like fucking stunts and flips. And this cannot and never will sell mainstream. There's no content to it. What this is, if this was the music business, you've got a bunch of singers that can't stay in pitch and can't hit all the notes, and you got musicians that are far from virtuosos at their instruments but can kind of hang with a simple tune, and as long as they play long and loud and they've got one catchy hook that they repeat over and over and over, you might can sell that record for a little while. Yeah, but I mean, they but have their you're fans. not going to be a rock and roll Hall of Fame band. No, they have their fans. They have the people that eat this stuff up. And I've watched a few of these pay-per-views with large groups of people on occasion when I'm allowed out of the house, as I said. And um, 
you see that, yes, there are people that do. They eat it up. I mean, I, I'm not saying they're enough to keep a company in business, but they love it, and uh, that's what they want to see. And then the funny thing is then when AEW will showcase certain things that I tend to like more or enjoy or whatever, that's the stuff where they get bored and they tune out and they go and make a sandwich in the other room, like Gorilla Monsoon used to say, and, and on and on. So, I mean, they have a certain type of, of fan. You know, and that's, well, that's you just know, it. If, if you notice when they have the real good matches, when they had MJF and Punk, when they had shit that made sense on a, you know, an intermittent or infrequent basis, the people, FTR's matches against anybody but the Buckaroos, the people get into it. They understand it. They like it. It makes sense. And they're watching it. But unfortunately, it's not only can uh, most of this roster not do that and perform like that, but the ones that can are held down because they're not the friends of the goddamn EVPs who want these, you know, circus fucking exhibitions. It always stands out when you have people on, on these AEW shows that really know how to work and know how to put a match together because it reminds you sometimes of how bad everything else is. And, and it, it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that way. You know, it really shouldn't, it should be more spread out evenly. But I remember even from the very beginning, like an early example I remember was when Chris Jericho and Cody Rhodes had their match. I forget what pay-per-view it was. And it was, you know, a top featured match. And I remember going, Oh my God, I, I, I forgot. This is a wrestling match. I, the, the, this is supposed to be a wrestling show. And, and these guys reminded me because they know, how to work a match. They know how to work together. They're, they, they've been around a while. They've been trained the right way. And it kind of shits on everything everybody else is doing, you know? Well, and I, I still don't know for a classic pro wrestling match, they've ever topped Cody versus Dustin on that first oh, show. Yeah. But yeah, but nevertheless, moving on on this show, uh, Jane Cargill and Nyla Rose over the disputed TBS championship. Nyla had stolen the belt, blah, blah, blah. Again, the, the biggest remark I have is Jane Cargill again changes her hair, her look, her tights, her whole gimmick. WWE Creative Services would have a fucking fit. They would, they would fucking set fire to her. Um, you used to have to get permission to get a tattoo. Or if you got tights and they were the a new color, you had to clear that. I mean, my God, she, every big show, she comes up with some different gimmick. But then she has none of her own. I don't, anyway, match was bowling shoe ugly. People were on their hands. The girls were in quicksand. And then finally, Jane won with her finish. FTR was not even in the building. For this pay-per-view, but Jane and Nyla got plenty of time. Your thoughts? Well, it's funny you mentioned FTR because I can't imagine they're happy right now. And, and I'm sure they just don't really want to talk about it because Dax Harwood tweeted something right before the pay-per-view asking fans if he should live tweet one of his old NXT tag team matches <laughs> <laughs> and, and stuff like that. So there's a little passive aggressive stuff going on. but. You know, Jane Cargill is what she is. I, I think she's got a great look. I think she's got a lot of potential. They have to protect her. Like you guys have said it, it's a similar thing 
with Goldberg. I think right now the shorter match is the better. And there's a reason why they're keeping her away from, you know, the main event or rather the main women's title right now and with the TBS title. But one thing I noticed. But uh, well, can too- you imagine if any guy on the roster with any potential had had the push and the undefeated streak that Jane has had? You might have something by this point, but she, the one person they picked to do it was the person from scratch that had never wrestled until she showed up there. And the crowd doesn't help because I think um, something with the AEW crowd, I just don't think that they want to see women's wrestling because it doesn't matter if it's good or bad. And, and you know, we'll get to it later. But I thought Jamie Hayter and Tony Storm might have been the best match on the whole damn show. And, <laughs> and And they were still dead even during that. So I think it's. They're also working against that handicap, and it makes the matches, obviously, as we know, it makes the matches seem worse when the crowd doesn't seem to give a shit about what they're what they're watching. All right. Well, I guess we ought to move on and get through this bloody show, huh, Brian Solomon, one way or the other. Let's talk about the Ring of Honor world title match. Oh, what have they done to my child there? Ring of Honor. I saved them from the... The clutches of death only to see it become a prostituted world championship on another company's television programming. (sighs) Obviously, they just had a tag team match. A tag team match player with Claudio and Danielson against Jericho and Sammy Guevara on TV because this is a four-way with everyone, including the partners, fighting amongst themselves for the Ring of Honor world title. And the best thing about it was Ian Riccoboni came in for actual professional commentary from a real announcer. But a four-way for a world title of a dead company putting partners against each other to feed Chris Jericho's ego so he can win in the end. I think I've summarized the basic reason for the uh, occurrence of this match. But again, Brian Danielson is probably the best in-ring modern style worker that there is, the modern style match. And he can go, and we've seen him in these wonderful single matches. And Claudio, love his work almost all the time. And even Jericho, he knows what he he should do whether he will anymore or not. And Sammy can be led, even though he's too hyperactive for his own good. But does this prove you cannot have a good four-way match, and especially not in AEW, because they're not going to have a fucking match. They're going to have a display of Staged fighting of some kind. Uh, the bell rings, jump start, 100 miles an hour, two to the floor, two in the ring. Which say, same thing they did on their tag team match Wednesday night, but then they all went to the floor. And then I remember we talked about this earlier in the program, Brian Solomon, because you witnessed it um, live at Dynamite last Wednesday. Then they start doing the thing because it's a four-way, but two guys, even if they're not partners, two guys will disappear. And then two more guys will fight in the ring for however long until their cue. And then they come back in. And 
It was just guys doing moves to each other, even though there's talent in this. I just don't think there's a way to have a good four-way match. I think this was about as good as a four-way match could be. I have to say that I'll be a slight devil's advocate. I'm not saying it it set the world Don't worry, on fire. I won't bite you. We're it too was far the, apart. No, we've had enough blood. I think that the the match was the the it was the first match on the card up to that point where I actually became invested watching it and stopped talking to my friends. And <laughs> we all, actually, we all did. We all started actually watching. And I think part of it is because at least, at least, you have four guys in there, and I'd even put Guevara in that category at this point, who can have a good match, who can, especially the other three. And, and you, I mean, you mentioned Danielson. He's always great. I, I still say, he gave Roman Reigns the best match, I think, of his entire title reign right before he left WWE when they had one of their pay-per-view matches. I mean, he can work with anybody. It's still, you know, four ways are not my favorite. Triple threats are not my favorite. I was at WWE when they wanted, when they did the triple threat at the main event for WrestleMania 2000, and I thought it was a big mistake then, the first time they ever did it at WrestleMania. Not a fan of those kind of matches, but this is about as much as you could hope for from a match like that. I mean, I, I will I will say that. Well, and that's... Again, I curse myself. But when they were... When they were oddities, a triple threat match, when I first did it, I did it once in four years in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And then Paul Lee stole it and made it a dance. And then JR calls and says, Hey, how'd y'all do that three-way match down there? Okay, boom, boom. Once every few years, a situation would arise where you have a baby face and a heel and one guy who's going from one direction to another, and they all got an issue with each other, and you can work it out. But then it just became a thing to do, especially the indies and the fucking, you know, the real hardcore dedicated outlaw wrestling fans that love the idea of having four guys or five guys or six guys just doing all their shit at the same time. And it's goddamn ludicrous now. And you can't do it where it, it makes sense and doesn't look phony. And if, if you can't do a wrestling match where it doesn't, it doesn't look phony and makes sense, then you shouldn't fucking book it to begin with. But I'll get an example. Danielson takes a Spanish fly and rolls out of the ring and is gone for three and a half minutes. Claudio sells a code breaker for two minutes and 45 seconds. And then while the other guys do their choreographed spots, it just, it, it, it's, it's off-putting. And I know the people in the building, what's really making me not enjoy it on pay-per-view is knowing that the people in the building are sitting there looking at the guys just, like you said, laying outside on the floor watching for their cue to come back in the ring, and that, and they're saying, well, look at, look at that phony shit. They just wait. I just, ah. Anyway, wouldn't you know who won the pony after it went on forever? Chris Jericho, still the Ring of Honor champion. Shocking. Shocking, I say. But I think with the interference stuff and, and them laying all over the ring, like you said, or outside the ring, I, I do. I think in a match like this, and this points to the flaws of doing these kind of matches too much, 
because it's every man for himself and you have four guys in there, well, how else could you explain why they would ever allow two guys to work, you know, one-on-one without the other two piling on constantly? The only way to explain it away is to have them laid out outside the ring, which, which looks terrible. But but otherwise, it would just be four guys climbing on top of each other. <laughs> That's what the rest of it is. Right, right. And uh, and uh, not to spend too much time on this, but the uh, you know, and and again, I invented it in the modern era. They'd had in Texas. We found records of in the sixties. They had a three way match, and there were always the four tag team elimination matches with four corners matches in Tennessee wrestling where. There was a guy in each corner of the ring, but he had to tag in a guy or a team in each corner of the ring, but he had to tag in a representative, you know, from two at a time. It wasn't just all four constantly. But the way to do the three-way is since everybody has a goddamn issue with each other, they do initially attack each other. But then the heel, being a heel the full-on heel, he's the guy that wants to lag back and let the other two fight until they realize that they're being played for suckers and both of them might then team up on him a little bit or whatever the fuck. And then sometimes you knock a guy off the apron of the ring and he takes a bad bump or you post him or whatever and he's down for a minute or two so that the other guys can do their thing. You make it part of the match and make it flow. You don't just do such contrived orchestrated bullshit that nobody can either follow it or believe that all these last minute saves and occurrences could possibly happen. It just, again, anything that's ever done, that's good. You like it until you see it fucking constantly. And any of these matches on this pay-per-view by themselves may not have been the goddamn end of it all. But when you have to see over and over, hour after hour, chaos and lunacy and fucking nobody on anybody's side and everybody just doing moves and flips and crashing through furniture, if that's normal, then chaos is normal and then there's no chaos and you just can't process this shit. I've got a whole notepad here just of the highlights of the shit they did wrong. Speaking of what they did wrong, Solomon Grundy. Yes. Do you think now that someone has some buyer's remorse over signing Soraya, the signing of Soraya? Yes. <laughs> uh, in, in in a word, yes, because uh, this was, I don't know, it's, it's like, uh, I hate to say it, but it's like I've called it the AEW effect, where, where she came in. Huge response, huge reaction, gradually as the weeks go on, dissipating, dying out, people losing interest until you finally get to the match. And I hate to say it because I think Britt Baker's great, and I mean on the mic and in the ring. Um, This was probably— This was not Britt Baker's fault. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. And I would have to say it was probably the—which sounds insane. It was probably the women's match that the crowd was least interested in. And that's saying a lot because you you had this what was supposed to be this dramatic story of a comeback, and then they they screwed it up by seeming to somehow want to turn Britt Baker face, and <laughs> you don't know who you're supposed to root for. And the weird thing was that the press scrum, I think Soraya or Soraya even said that that was one of the 
strong suits of the match that you didn't know who what? to root for. She actually said, oh, she addressed it. She addressed it and said that she thought it was great that you had one person who had the inspirational comeback story. And then you had the other person who was the sympathetic AEW original who's defending her turf. And you could decide um, who you oh, want to root for. And I oh, thought that boy. was one of the weaknesses of the match. Well, and, and you never know with the, with the kids these days whether they have been sold that bill of goods by somebody trying to manipulate them or whether they actually think that. And I know somebody's going to say, oh, Soraya's grown up in a wrestling family. Well, apparently she didn't listen like many you know, kids, delinquent children. She didn't listen to her parents. No, that's, we talked about it. I said, you know, the Britt Baker promo from television would make him want to boo Soraya out of the building when she was supposed to be the Raven baby face and was when she first appeared. But then at the same time, Britt Baker has been such a good heel. They're into her as a heel. So it was like they were trying to give a, all of the fans a reason not to react to each girl. They didn't want to boo Soraya because they like her, but they didn't want to cheer for her because they're more sympathetic to Britt Baker, but they don't really want to cheer for her all the way because she's supposed to be a heel and we like her that way. So for a lot of this, they just sat there and stared at it. And it didn't help that this, I'm sorry, was not even an average girls match. I had better girls matches on Ohio Valley wrestling television in front of 25,000 homes in Louisville, Kentucky with Victoria and Mickey James and jazz Jillian Hall, et cetera, than was exhibited here. And we've seen Britt Baker do better than this. When one of the girls isn't landing on her and breaking her face. Um, but again, the idea is Soraya's coming back after five years from a, a neck injury that caused her retirement within two minutes, Britt Baker gives her a neck breaker off the apron onto the floor. And then they continue to have a match and she's working the neck. Yes. But let's, if this was the UFC and let's say everybody, Oh, Connor McGregor, he injured his knee in training. Well then, Yes his opponent might very well want to go after that injured knee, but I don't think they would go another 20 minutes after the opponent took a goddamn baseball bat to the knee. Is there any sense of context to what you could, it's a 120 pound girl that hadn't wrestled in five years because of neck fusion surgery or whatever. I think if you just gave her a neck breaker in the ring and let her take a nice bump off of it and she sold it, that's good enough for the first two minutes. And by the sloppy go-home stretch, I think Soraya was either ready to give up or she was blown up because the expression on her face was like, oh, fuck, these people aren't caring. She was definitely, she definitely seemed blown up. You could tell even by the end of it, it was one of those things where you, you look in her face and you could tell she's thinking, wow, I... <laughs> This is not yeah. as, e as easy as I remember it being. You could really tell that it took a toll on her. And I was actually getting a little concerned because I think like WWE, you know, we've seen this before with other talents where I think their medical staff is very conservative. They really err on the side of caution. They don't, they try not to put people in there that they think have a chance of, you know, getting very seriously hurt. 
Right. And then it and then it seems like after years <laughs> of this, right? She's after years of this, all of a sudden. She shows up in AEW and it's like, yeah, you're fine. Just get in there. It's okay. A hundred percent clear. It's just a flesh wound. And, and I have to look at that very skeptically, you know? Oh, and then they got on the top rope and kind of awkwardly fiddled around and Soraya tried to hit a sunset flip power bomb, but Britt kind of landed on her legs. They more or less crumpled. Soraya hit a DDT. looked like it killed Britt Baker. And then it wouldn't end. They kept doing false finishes back and forth. And finally, Soraya hits another one of those. It's like a package DDT. And then another one and just beat her Baker flat. I mean, again, why does everybody have to hit a finish and then pick the fucking body up and hit another finish or two? Then you've beaten somebody flat. They've got no bitch, no gripe, no out. When you hit a finish, boom, and cover one, two, three, and the guy care girl kicks out a little bit too late, then you've you've got something. But you just beat these people flat as a plate full of piss. And that's what happened here. Um, and was there it did you detect a major response to Soraya winning her? The major response was Soraya. She was overcome with emotion. Yes. Everybody else was overcome with need for a bathroom break i think yeah i think she genuinely was i mean it it had to be we all know how how much this means to her i mean they made a movie out of it for god's sake so you know you could tell that it meant a lot to her i thought it was a nice touch that her brother was there and he was kind of for people that know the backstory if anyone does which is another concern but but it added to the match uh but again like you said it it just felt like uh, she was she was the most invested in the match out of anyone in the building. And I mean, again, I don't know whether, whether it's the way that this thing has been booked and put together where they, they bring a girl that's so popular into the company and then immediately put her with their most popular heel girl. Um, and then phrase or, or construct the interviews to where, you're rooting for the heel as the home team. Did they just, they didn't have a reaction because they didn't want to have the reaction they were being told to have. So they just didn't have any, or was it that the match didn't come together? Cause it didn't. And I'm, I'm sure she was rusty, but whatever the fuck, I don't remember pages matches before. I don't know how good she was or wasn't. I think being away definitely hurt, not just in her own abilities, but in people's, response to her you know i mean she deserves a lot of credit in wwe i think because she was if you go back to when they when they started really putting emphasis on women's wrestling that was actually good she was one of the first ones that led the charge sort of and i think they had a lot of hopes for her before she got hurt but i think what happened was after she was out she got completely overshadowed i think by a lot of the the wrestlers that came after her that were a lot better, quite frankly, in WWE that really became cemented in people's minds as the faces of the women's revolution, like the Charlotte Flairs and Sasha Banks and Bailey and, and people like that. And it's sort of like, what have you done for me lately kind of a thing? Well, what have they done lately for the our real wayward sons? Here are three guys that individually 
if you were using them interacting with other people, could be meaningful parts of this roster. And instead, Wardlow got over. They didn't know what to do with him, so they put him in an angle with the security guards and the fake lawyer. And then he's been floating around ever since and then putting a team with Samoa Joe, who's a fucking, again, a human wrecking machine if he's pushed right and used right. But Joe came in, same as everybody else, backwards. They come in and get beat, and then they start doing something with him. And poor powerhouse Hobbs, who's been on our radar since company started, and we've seen so little of it. He looks like a million dollars now. And if, and we've been going since the time that they started. Where is Hobbs? Can we see more Hobbs? Can you please push some Hobbs? So now they've determined the best way to do this is to have Hobbs and Joe and Wardlow all three interact after that goofy tag team that wore Joe, that Joe turns on Wardlow for no reason, an illogical, nobody cares reason, and then Hobbs doesn't like Joe even though they're both heels, but Wardlow becomes the sympathetic baby face and by default. And now they're going to have a three-way for the TNT title, which is way to the, the way to make all the giants look normal is to put all these guys that are twice as big as everybody else on the roster in the ring together, so they all look normal too. And within 15 seconds, they were fighting on the floor because now it's a three-way, not a four-way, but a three-way. They have had the three-way before the four-way if we were going numerically. The announcers were trying so hard to put Hobbs over, and you can tell that Jim Ross would set fire to three-quarters of the roster to get Hobbs a push because he can see he's a fucking star waiting to happen. Um, but you, it, you again, you can't really tell how anybody's work is coming along. I mean, Joe's is fine. We know that. Wardlow and Hobbs we'd like to see, but nobody's going to look really good or get over in this, and nobody's really working like a heel or a baby face. They're doing moves. Wardlow did the amazing run up to the top and flip off onto both of them. He can move for a guy that size, and he's not like Dino where he's klutzy and, you know, club-footed. But if there was anybody to guide Wardlow, my God. So then... Wardlow gave Hobbs three power bombs. <laughs> Remember that time Andre the Giant took those three power bombs? So Wardlow gave Hobbs three power bombs. And then Joe, right in front of the corpse referee, Rick Knox. Did you hear what happened to him last week? What happened? He, he ran past a cemetery. Two guys ran after him with shovels. So right in front of him, Joe hits Wardlow with the title belt and then choked out Hobbs. And so not only did Hobbs, the only real pure heel in this match, because, you know, Joe had just switched, whatever the fuck, but Hobbs gets power bombed three times and then choked out. It, which would be fine again. Somebody's got to win. Somebody's got to lose this thing if they bothered to get the kid over first. I mean, sometimes it's two years. They'll come in and they'll beat somebody for two years, and then somehow 
he starts getting squash wins on television. I Which think it was like buy, it's like buying a copy of Playboy after you've already fucked three porn stars. It's anticlimactic. Are you speaking from experience on that? Absolutely. Those Playboys cost money. <laughs> I think it was smart. One thing I'll say is I, I think it was smart. It was a smart out with Wardlow to have Hobbs be the one that takes the fall there. Not that I, I think Hobbs is tremendous, and I think they should be right. doing way more with him. In fact, I even think he'd make a great uh, baby face eventually. But I think with Wardlow, if they're doing it logically, which, again, we could never take for granted, the thing to do would be to say, okay, MJF is now the world champion, right? Well, this guy Wardlow annihilated him on this other paper. <laughs> and he hasn't lost since. He hasn't been pinned since. He is the natural challenger. Have him come out. And you have real doubt now in people's minds of how, you know, how is he, how, you know, obviously thinking that that Wardlow could beat him. That would be the way to go. So I thought at least that was a smart way to deal with that, to get the belt off of Wardlow without having to beat him. Well, and you obviously see, this is the problem when Tony books himself into a situation where there is no win win for anybody. No, you don't want to beat Wardlow. Uh, but if you got to get the belt off of him, okay, a three-way. The WWE has established, you know, you don't have to beat the champion to be a champion, which was stupid. And by the way, the original triple threat match was pinfall elimination, one winner, like they all should be if you're going to have one. But at the same time, you don't want you you don't want to beat Wardlow. And you want to put some heat on Joe. Why the fuck is Hobbs the third guy? If you're going to power bomb the third guy three times and then choke him out and beat him, just don't make it fucking Hobbs. Because yeah, they've got, as we noticed when we went through the roster, they got 150 people in this company. So you you got room for three big badass giants, and they could probably go along and coexist without actually running across each other until all three of them are established and have a decent fucking record and some status in the community. Instead of again, let's bring in this guy that looks like a million dollars that we've been dicking around for three years and has never got a, a sustained continued push and let's bring him out and, and we'll beat him again. Well, it, it shows you their thinking. You know, they tip their hands a little bit in situations like, like that where you can see how they value people. You know, they, they, they clearly looked at those, meaning they, I guess I mean Tony Khan, but clearly looked at those three guys. And obviously it was obvious to him saying, well, yeah, of course, Hobbs is the guy that we're going to beat because, you know, we have, we, <laughs> you know, that that shows you some of the behind the scenes thinking, I guess, which is a little discouraging that they considered a guy like Hobbs to be the obvious guy to, to lose well, the match. Well, now, wait a minute though. Now, because when you think about it, Hobbs is the one who was quoted as saying CM Punk was a big help to him that time. Ah, there you go. So potentially maybe that has something to do with maybe the EVPs. Oh, nevertheless, you know what? Here's the thing. You got a big hoss fight. There with the three big guys as 
as JR would call it, a big hoss fight. You got a lot of beef on the hoof in a match like that. Each guy almost 300 pounds. That's some meat. That's some solid byproduct of, of beef right there. And that's exactly, Brian Solomon, what you're going to get and what everybody's going to get when they go to our friends at Omaha Steaks. I'm not talking about actual human flesh. I'm not talking about they're not actually going to carve up a wrestler and time. ship it to you, although you have to pay extra for that. <laughs> Depends boy, on the wrestler. Well, and the pickled earlobes are a delicacy. But nevertheless, if you want some beef this, this holiday season, it may be a little late now for Thanksgiving, but Christmas is coming up too, and it doesn't matter. You got to eat every day, whether it's a holiday, whether it's a day with a Y in it, whether you're working, whether you're off, whether you're, well, you can't eat when you sleep. So wake up and eat some meat. And the flavor experts at Omaha Steaks have made it easy to savor all the flavors with their mouth-watering assortment of perfectly aged steaks, ultra-juicy burgers, easy-to-prepare comfort meals that are ready in a flash, and all you need to do to get a great deal on all this cattle byproduct and fine eating is go to omahasteaks.com because... They've got a 50% off site-wide friends and family sale going on. If you go to omahasteaks.com and use my promo code, which as everybody knows is JCE, you're going to get $30 off your order in addition to the 50% off site-wide friends and family sale. Now, there may be a minimum order required on that friends and family. Half off meat. For heaven's sake, what do you expect? They're going to give it away? They might not be in business too much longer giving people prices like this. As a matter of fact, the cows, as I mentioned before, may go on strike because they don't like to die in vain and have their carcasses sold this cheaply. So grab you a freezer, a big one, and go to omahasteaks.com right now. The friends and family sale 50% off. Use my promo code JCE. You're going to get another $30 off. They're practically bribing you to take this incredible supply of meat. So fill up your freezer and eat from now till next spring with our friends at omahasteaks.com. Promo code JCE. Friends and family sale. You may not be their family, but they're treating you like a friend. I love Omaha steaks, actually. Anytime I get them for Christmas, Thanksgiving, from family members, I always love seeing that giant styrofoam insulated package on my front step. It's and then you can thrill. reuse that also for a nice little styrofoam cooler for your own. Every time you order the Omaha steaks, you got a free styrofoam cooler there. There you go. And for heaven's sake, nobody beats their meat. Omaha steaks. <laughs> All right. Speaking of beating something, I wanted to beat myself in the head with a hammer because I was, I won't say I was looking forward to anything on this program except MJF emerging triumphant, but I thought, okay, Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal against Sting and Darby Allen. This can be either a great tag team match or an AEW style clusterfuck. And going into it, I had high hopes it would be, because again, regardless of what you think about him or whether he should be on TV or now or behind the scenes or whatever, Jeff Jarrett right now is the best worker 
on the AEW roster. Brian Danielson's probably the best at modern style, but there is nobody that is as good as Jeff Jarrett at classic pro wrestling. His psychology and his work, and he can have a match with anybody of any style, and it'll make sense. I've seen him do it a million times, and he can get people over and and, and elevate them with their, their performance against him. And all that was completely negated here. And Jay Lethal is one of the most special talents I think they have and is capable of so much. And all that was negated here. And Darby Allen, we've said, as the unique, weird charisma. And people like to watch him and he does the wild shit, but at least he flings himself into it with abandon. But he can be led and sting. He's 63 or whatever, just that he's still there. And if he's doing something sparingly, oh, he's an icon. And they had to muck this fucking thing up to where it was almost goddamn unbearable. They couldn't just have a goddamn tag team match. They couldn't do what all these guys can do. They had to AEW it up. And I don't know whether it's Tony Khan or whether Jeff is did Jeff come in and have this much pull to put something like this together? I don't fucking know. I don't know why he'd want to. Let me just run down the highlights, Brian, and I'll get your thoughts, Mr. Solomon. Solomon Grande? Sure. <laughs> Jeff brings, what was it, four or five sting druids down in black outfits and sting masks. And then they have a blackout. And then there's a spotlight. And there's a body bag with a, bi a body in the body bag on the stage in the spotlight. So Jay Lethal takes the Sting Druids to get the body bag. But Darby's music starts playing. And then as Jay Lethal gets to the body bag, the pyro goes off and scares Lethal. And Darby comes out and attacks him with a skateboard and beats up Lethal and the Druids with the skateboard. I don't know who was in the body bag or where he went. And meanwhile, while this is going on, Jeff is watching from the ring and Sting comes in the ring behind Jeff and he's there forever. And finally, Jeff turns around and sees him and begs off and then the bell rings. And they have an immediate four-way, two in the ring, two go to the floor. And Sting slammed Jay Lethal off the top turnbuckle onto the apron. Which, again, why... Bless Jay that he wants to take these kind of risks and that kind of bumps and this fucking mess when he's not being treated properly, but God damn it. So Darby Allen and Jeff go out in the crowd in the back of the arena and Sting and Lethal go the other direction back in the arena. And I, I, I wrote, I swear to God, Jeff's the best worker on the roster and Lethal's one of my favorite people and I can't fucking watch this. And Darby was going to cough and drop Jeff off of a ladder on the stage. Well, no, wait, there was a ladder on the stage. Darby goes to climb the ladder and he's going to cough and drop off the ladder, off the stage, onto Jeff. But Zippy, the giant pinhead, appears and catches Darby and carries him back to the entrance and whirly birds him on the ramp. And at one point, they were just showing replays of shit that had previously happened while everybody in the 
match in quotation marks, wandered around in the general admission seats. And so I fast forwarded to see if anybody ever actually got in the ring. And finally they did. Jeff Jarrett and Darby Allen. And I stopped that and I slowed that down. And I swear to God, in 30 seconds, they were done. I would love, I would pay to see Jeff Jarrett and Darby Allen have a 20-minute singles match with nobody allowed to touch the arena floor or they would be electrocuted to death. And I bet you it would be one of the better matches. It would be the best match Darby ever had at a better match than most of these things. Um... So now everybody got tired, so they got two in and two out and started tagging. Bear in mind, they fought after the entire arena and took bumps and people have interfered. And by the way, did I mention that this is no disqualification, no count out, lazy booking? So they've been all over the building and they fought everywhere and people have interfered. And then suddenly they get in the ring and two guys just wander over to the corners and the other two guys get a hold. And Jay Lethal gets an abdominal stretch on Darby Allen. And in 45 seconds later, Darby hip tosses him out and gets a cold tag to Sting. It was the coldest tag I'd ever seen. It's like he didn't even care. It's like he just went up and reached his hand out like he was taking a fucking toll at a toll booth. It's in here, tag me. Boom, done. Zero crowd pop. Why would they pop? There's been no match. And 45 seconds of heat on the baby face before he makes the tag. What in the flying fuck are they even thinking? And the people and then, that... yeah, Go ahead, go ahead. The, I was going to say, the, the, the whole tagging thing, the people I was watching it with, again, and these were people that I think were, were you know, diehard AEW fans, they even said, well, why are they bothering to <laughs> tag? They, this is a no disqualification match. They've been trying to kill each other all over the building. What is the referee going to do if they don't tag in and out? It, it, it does, didn't. That part didn't make any sense at all after what they had done. I think that I enjoyed the match a little more than you did, and I'll, I'll explain Boy, you would have almost had to. <laughs> anyone would have, but I think the reason is because, unlike you, the way you described it going in, this is pretty much what I expected it to be. Um, I didn't think it was going to be anything other than this, especially because Sting has been doing a lot of this kind of stuff lately. Maybe in some weird way it masks some of his physical limitations, even though that seems counterintuitive. But I think that's what I expected it to be. It sort of gave me what I thought. I think Jeff Jarrett is a tremendous worker, always has been. I love his crowd interactions as a heel or priceless. I think, though, he stands out more in today's wrestling than he did maybe in his heyday just because he's able to do things now that are that were taken for granted back then and yeah. aren't and are not so much now. So, I mean, he's he's particularly in today's wrestling. I have to say I, I enjoy him now maybe more than I did 20, 30 years ago. I really mean that. But so this match didn't. I, I don't know. I, I wasn't expecting it to be much more than this. And, and I enjoyed it for what it was. Lowered expectations. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, okay, Sting. You made He's 63. He's in a black sweatshirt, black pants, black gloves. And he made a flat-footed comeback. Because that's, I mean, he, he like you said, they're masking it. He gets the big crossbody from a high point in on 
you know, two or three big guys, and then he makes a comeback. But then he gets a scorpion deathlock on Jeff Jarrett and the pinhead and Sanjay get in the ring right in front of the referee again. I know no DQ. And they choke slam Sting. And then Jeff covers him one, two, kick out, no pop. Because it's it's nobody was with this because it was ridiculous. It didn't make any sense. And then they just did more, two more cold tags to Jay Lethal and to Darby Allen. They just started over again. And they do a few nice athletic spots, which it's way too late for that at this point. And then Jeff gets the guitar. Darby is coming off the top with a coffin drop and Jeff blasts him across the back with the guitar and the guitar breaks. And Darby Allen nips up and doesn't sell it. Again, this is the smallest guy in the fucking company. And whether you like it or not, everybody sold the guitar. Darby just got knocked out by the guitar last week, but everybody sold it. Suddenly, after all this, he doesn't sell the guitar. And then Darby does 18 of those fake sting backhands that used to make me fucking quiver and cringe when sting did them 30 years ago because they looked phony then. Now Darby's doing the backhands, and here comes Zippy in, and they're just using the giant pinhead freely, and Sting gets him in a reverse face lock, and Darby coffin drops him into a death drop, and then Jay Lethal back to the match. (laughs) Jay Lethal goes for the lethal injection on Sting, and Sting tries to catch him in a death drop, but missed him, and they both fell down. And Darby hit another coffin drop, one, two, three. And again, Jay Lethal gets beat. Sting is 63, and he's as over it now as he's going to be. Jeff is 53, and he's over now as he's going to be. Darby, (laughs) he's got a future if he doesn't paralyze himself. But the best all-around talent for the future, they decided he's the one that needs to get beat. Fucking mess. Fucking rotten, as Rip Rogers would say. I do worry about Darby Allen. He's one of those guys I watch and I just go, wow. I, I think that somebody needs to, I don't know, warn him what, what the future <laughs> may hold. <laughs> I mean it. I like, have a feeling it's been done. And he's yes. like all the rest of the kids, he ain't going to listen. Well, I, I remember on Twitter one time there was the, an exchange where I forget what it was. He had done something really insane. I mean, even for him, maybe it was when he got dragged in the body bag or something. And uh, there were people on there, like even some people of authority and note that were saying, kid, you need to slow down and watch it. And you're going to be in a wheelchair and all that, God forbid. And he he had this very uh, hostile response, like really um upset and and angry and and very kind of um angrily responding to people uh you know who were i think genuinely concerned for his health so i mean look he's all in that's the way that's what he wants to do hopefully it, it works out okay for him but it's scary to watch a lot of times well and i mean even if it, if it was just wrestling Actually, no, then I'd have a problem with it because in the old days, a guy that took crazy bumps on his own, he was only going to hurt himself. And if he didn't listen, well, what the fuck it did. But he, these guys do such phony shit 
to set up their stunts that it hurts the wrestling business. So that's why I get mad at it. If he wants to break his fucking neck, let him. He's a fucking idiot. He could make a ton of money in this business, or he can keep jumping a tricycle over his fucking mother's house and kill himself. But they should be reined in before they make the business look so stupid. And, you know, if he doesn't want to take the special kind of talent that he's got and monetize it and make himself successful and famous and people not to think he's a goddamn blithering simpleton, then that's up to him. <laughs> but I can think, okay, now you've got a job working for a billionaire on a national television show, so you're not going to jump off any more bridges or fucking jump any goddamn thing with wheels over something that you've set up in your backyard because you're not getting paid for that. You got a responsibility here at a fucking job and a career. And you have a responsibility to the company that's paying you a lot of money. Straighten your shit out and become a fucking adult. You goddamn well, idiot. Why am I talking exactly. to this guy like he's a fucking my child? But I this wouldn't is have what a people... kid that stupid. He wouldn't be jumping his shit. He'd be out fucking selling tickets to the mo motherfuckers to watch this goof that's going to kill himself jump shit. And this is what people were saying to him. Exactly what you're saying are exactly the kinds of of comments that he was getting from older people within the business who, who'd seen a lot of stuff who were trying to warn him. And uh, he was just having none of it. So he's, he's yeah. decided. All righty, then. Well, you mentioned this earlier in the program. And boy. I mean, I don't know whether it was a blessing or a curse that this girl's match came after Soraya and Britt Baker, but boy, did Jamie Hayter and Tony Storm show them up. And I got to be honest, as soon as this came on, I said, oh, fucking hell, it's two and a half hours into this rotten pay-per-view, plus another hour if you watch the pre-show, and we've still got more left. And I wandered off on it for a, a while. Because I was like, what the fuck? And then I came back and they're tearing the house down. Yep. And the people love Jamie Hayter because they've decided, like the acclaimed, like FTR, like Wardlow, that they're going to cheer for somebody that's halfway good at what they're fucking doing instead of what they're being told to do. And they have decided Jamie and Tony Storm, honestly, both these girls are better than Soraya. And they may be giving old Britt Baker a little run for her money. And they had a match that the people wanted to see. And they also had, and then Britt Baker came out and she got more reaction running in on this match than she did having the match against the big new signee superstar. And finally, Tony Storm hits the exposed turnbuckle after nailing Baker off the apron. And Jamie Hayter wins one, two, three, and they loved it. And right then, Tony Khan had to be sitting at the fucking gorilla position, looking at the monitor, going, my God, how much did I just spend for Soraya? And this girl was already on the roster. <laughs> yeah, and she's organically, like you said, grown into something of a phenomenon, and they would be really dumb if they didn't capitalize on this. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the obvious thing to do is break her away from Brit and have her become kind of the baby face of the situation. People want to cheer for her. 
I would say, and I think I told you this before we started, but I would call this the best match on the card. Yeah. And that's that's not a knock on, you know, I thought with MJF and Moxley, you know, obviously that's the main event and the story being told there I thought was compelling. But for the match itself, bell to bell, for me, this was the best match on the card. And See, and, it was, well, and, and and you're right. The thing is, the best match on the card can not necessarily always be the main event or blah, right. blah, 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 but can be viewed as the match that showed both people to their best uh, exposure and got the point that was supposed to be gotten across across. That's the best match. It can be. I, I remember years ago when I did an interview with Vince for, for the magazine, for WWF magazine. And he was very much against the idea that you just mentioned. He was not, I don't know if you ever got this impression from him, but he specifically brought up with WrestleMania three, I guess this had been sticking in his craw for about (laughs) 25 years, but he hated the fact that everybody talks about Steamboat and Savage being the best match on the show, because he, he said to me that because of the story strictly based on who drew the money and what was the biggest story that Hogan and Andre has got to be the best match on the show because that and 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 in his view I guess he thought anytime you have an undercard match that steals the show that that's something that shouldn't be happening which which I guess I don't know I that was his view but well if, see now Vince I think is a little bit far on the other side of this thing yeah because that w- everybody knew going in that Hogan and Andre was going to be just Fugly, just fucking ugly as far as a wrestling match, but that was what sold the tickets and drew the money and the two iconic personalities. But underneath, you want to give them good matches because the rest of the show, the people have been thrilled, they're excited, they come, and then they see the big main event that they paid to see, and everybody was happy when Hogan hit the leg drop. But if they had had, if every match on the card had been worse in the ring than Hogan and Andre and they weren't matches with those iconic personalities and they weren't matches that people actually paid to see and drew the money and they were also worse than Hogan and Bob God then that would have been an abysmal <laughs> show he he seemed to hate the idea of judging matches like the whole star ratings and all that like he he even mentioned it specifically he hated the idea of divorcing a match from the storyline and the angle like to him it was all about the storyline and the angle and that's what made the match special and he just hated the idea of judging a match like you would a performance at least for the fans to do that yeah Something well that you, you know he just didn't like that idea at all but I, I again that's what some people do but that's not what i do because if the match is You've got to have great matches on your show. They don't all have to be great because some of them, like Hogan and Andre, couldn't possibly be great, but they'll also sell tickets. But if you have all crummy matches with interesting people, sooner or later they'll quit selling tickets because your shows are the shits. And if you have all great matches with people that the fans don't give a fuck about, then you're going to quit selling tickets even quicker because then it's like with AEW, you're, you're just seeing, even if they're great matches, you're seeing a steady barrage of the same shit with a bunch of people you don't know or care about. It all has to work together. And not every match on the card 
That's what Eddie Graham used to do. He would give them good wrestling underneath and a lot of clean wrestling underneath so that the main events, when they got wild or they got bloody or they had the personalities or they had the angles, it would not only stand out even more, but it would make an impact that you remembered going home. So you can't just have great matches. You can't just have rotten matches with stars in them. You have to have a mixture of everything up and down the card. And you can't go too far again. Let's talk about the next match because, again, what you've you just mentioned, Jamie Hayter is probably going to turn on Britt Baker and become a big baby face because people like her. Well, imagine if when she did that, people hadn't already seen five turns in the last month. It might register a little more. That's what I'm talking about is this steady onslaught of what they call great matches. And even Uncle Dave Meltzer, after he's lost his mind, he's rating all this shit. The girls get five stars, better than Flair and Steamboat, because it's a new era. They call them great matches over and over. What you're doing is you're just doing every goddamn thing that can be done over and over to numb and immune the people to any reaction of it. So there has to be context and some element of restraint sometimes, and you have to be more focused on the personalities of the individual wrestlers than just what moves they're going to do, and then you get more mileage out of all of this. And it's also, it's more about, it's more than the moves. It's it's even just how people carry themselves in the ring, how they move around the ring. Like, like yeah. that was one of the little things that I loved about the hater and storm match and it's one of those like i said before where it stands out from everything else you're seeing is i'm sitting there going and especially nothing against tony storm but especially with jamie hater and i'm going she is moving around the ring like a wrestler somebody taught her how to really i don't know well i can't articulate it as well as i'd like to but just how to have the presence of a wrestler in a ring and it's as simple as that that can go a long way to getting the fans invested in a match well and then it can go a long way into getting the fans to divest themselves of (laughs) the poor acclaimed the poor acclaimed these guys again homegrown talent and the fans decided they liked him and casters got the rap he did two raps you know, coming into the ring for this one. And they need good, experienced heel teams to work with. And they didn't have one here. Neither a good heel team nor an experienced heel team. Nor any kind of team, for that matter. And this whole thing with Lee and Swerve, and we knew they were going to turn on each other. Or one was going to turn on the other. They were going to split up. And they did. Because Tony just decided he's going to reshuffle his his toy soldiers and some of the i guess germans are going over to the fucking french side or whatever but we were three hours in on this show plus an hour of bad pre-show matches and now the tag title match comes up and after the acclaims wrap again it wasn't fair to these kids they're green and they don't work enough to learn but they also don't learn anything Swerve ain't bad as a single. And Swerve's athletic. 
Keith Lee, the more we see of him, he's awkward to work with. He's immobile. He has no facials now. He looks like the Hulk, but he wrestles like he's in fucking quicksand. And so they start this tag team match. And and like I said, both Caster and Bowens look better with Swerve because he can move around. Keith Lee tries to do shit to show that he can move, but he can't move. And now, like I said, four hours into this whole production, these guys start out trying to have a match in the ring after the five previous matches have used napalm and bazookas. And then as soon as I pretty much say that, there goes Swerve to the back of the arena and brings a barricade back to the ring and leans it against the ring and tries to suplex Bowens on it, but Bowens suplexes him on the floor instead, and they leave the barricade there. Nobody, no no ringside attendant, no member of the ring crew, no other referee goes, okay, well, we need to move this back, it, it just because it's part of the stunts they've got set up. And they try to tell their lame story that was going to be the cause of this breakup, that Keith Lee doesn't want to cheat. I think between him and Swerve, I think he would be the better heel because Keith Lee looks like just an annoying fuck anyway, whereas Swerve kind of looks like he's got some personality. But anyway, so long heat on Bowens, and Lee and Swerve are a rotten team. They've not been a team very long. They They don't do team stuff very well, and they don't understand how to be tag team wrestlers. And they bury Caster by taking forever to do the double team stuff that they are trying to do on Bowens while Caster's got to stand there with Pete in hand. There was no momentum or jeopardy to this heat. And finally, after all of that, Bowens hit a reverse Hurricane Rana on Keith Lee that almost killed both of them, it looked like. And then absolutely frigid simultaneous tags. Both. Partners that tagged in got frostbite on all, all their fingers. And Key Caster made a comeback, and Keith Lee shut it right down and did some more awkward shit. And then Caster came back out and cold tagged Bowens. And they hit a finish on Swerve and got a two count. And if that the whole thing had gone to shit, the heels are outsmarting the faces. Caster did a crossbody off the top onto Lee on the apron, and they finally went through the guardrail. And after that, a guy crossbodies a big 400-pound sack of shit off the apron through a guardrail to the floor, and in the ring, Bowens and Swerve were doing false finishes. I, I, at that point, I gave up. And I hit fast forward, because they went another five fucking minutes. And when I slowed the thing down, Swerve had a pair of pliers and we're going to cut the fucking Acclaim's fingers off. And here comes Billy Gunn running down, but the referees grab him and Swerve tries to give Keith Lee the pliers and Keith Lee wouldn't use them and threw them down, which is the same goddamn finish they just did with Penthouse and Felix and Pac-Man and the fucking Bellhammer two weeks ago on TV. And then Swerve slaps Keith Lee in the face. And Keith Lee is supposed to be the baby face out of this. He's the one that doesn't want to cheat. The heel slaps him in the face, and he stands there and looks at it and takes it and walks off. 
And then when he walks off, you talked about it beforehand. Then the baby faces two on one on the heel hit him with like fucking seven moves and then beat him. It was awful. 20 minutes of this shit. The acclaimed are going to be dead in the water unless they get to work with a good heel team that knows how to lead a match. And this was not in any way fair to them and made them look like complete fucking idiots. And the whole dramatic moment, which was the, the most interesting thing about the match, even though, like you said, it had already been done, was <laughs> was Keith Lee walking out. And then they just, like I said, they just continue to just have a match. And and, and they actually, you know, <laughs> where, where you're, you're watching it going, are they going to pin him? I don't even know. Like, I'm thinking, you know, when every time, I'm not saying you do the same thing the same way every time, but, you know, a great example that pops in my mind from when I was a kid, because, you know, when you're a kid, everything's more impactful, was um, when they broke up Tito Santana and Rick Martel in the WWF. They were my favorite team when I was 10. They broke up at WrestleMania. It was the opposite, though. Martel, if I remember right, was he turned heel. He left Santana in the ring. I think they were against Anderson and Blanchard. And Santana got destroyed and quickly pinned. And, yes. you know, it, and it highlighted the fact of here's what happens when your partner abandons you in the middle of a tag team match. You don't just continue on with the match, uh, you know, as if nothing <laughs> happened. That was really a head scratcher. Hey, well, <laughs> They don't understand. They have to do all their shit. They have more moves they can do for the fans. They don't understand that if the point in your match that gets the biggest pop is not either the finish or the thing that happens right before the finish, then you have fucked up. You have fucked up. If the biggest pop of anything you do in your match comes at the 12-minute mark of a 20-minute match, you're a fucking idiot. And here's another. Who, who comes and then fucks for another 12 minutes? Right? I'm going to leave that one alone. So anyway, it was time now for our main event of the evening. For the AEW world title, hopefully what was going to be the coronation of a new superstar in the business, MJF, when he challenged Plummer Moxley, it was Plummer versus Prodigy is what it was here in this match. And this, again, MJF is such a great talent, but this bizarro world that they have created of these AEW fans, the the best heel in the business is cheered out of the building like a conquering hero. And Plummer Moxley, supposed to be the babyface, is booed like Mussolini during World War II. And this is the position they put themselves in by the fans by now have figured out that nobody's in charge. There's no structure here. There was never a plan. There wasn't a plan for the roster. There, were, there was plans in Tony's mind that he has saved ever since he was a teenager booking an E-Fed, whatever the fuck that may be. And they're just doing their own thing now. And because most of the, and they're cheering for people that they consider are talented 
who have usually been people that have been jacked around in this company in favor of people who aren't talented but who are related or who aren't talented but are friends. So now the babyface champion comes to get booed out of the building against the devil himself who's a popular hero. But at least we better see what we wanted to see. So we had well, to sit through this match to get it. Your thought. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I, ha I have a question for you about that. That's why I'm jumping in. Because yes. I was thinking this while I was watching it. Now, obviously, this, this crowd was going to just do what it wanted. They were cheering for MJF. They were booing Moxley. Uh, now, we saw how Moxley seemed to relish this. And he got into it with the crowd. And he's playing back and forth. In your opinion, in his position, and I, I know he's not your favorite guy, but just right. if, you, if you're giving him guidance, let's say, on this, was it was that the right thing to do, or should he have completely no-sold what they, the crowd was doing and continued you know, trying to work as, a, as the baby face of the match? There's a middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and there's a middle ground between no-selling and ignoring the crowd and actively giving them double fingers and saying, fuck you. <laughs> and in that situation, see, here's the thing. What Moxley did was what Moxley wanted to do. He knew he was going to get booed out of the building because of the groundswell of support for MJF, because the people wanted to see MJF and Punk. This should have been MJF and Punk. It would have been a much better match if it had been MJF and Punk. MJF would have been coronated as a new champion the right way if it was Punk. But instead, they got Moxley. So they wanted to cheer for MJF, and Moxley knew that he was going to get booed out of the building, and he took this, the, the advantage of that, to say, well, I'm going to go with it, so that what he could do was he could not only be an obnoxious heel to the people that were booing him, but also he could fucking basically take the majority of this match and not worry about trying to make MJF look like a competitor on his level. He was going to beat the shit out of him through most of it. And the excuse that he's going to use afterwards, if anybody questions him was, well, I was going with it because I was a heel. He knew exactly what he was doing. He either didn't want to, or can't make a guy at his match, even though they didn't do so much on the floor as they always do in a Moxley match. This was Moxley. Visually, it looked like a young WWE superstar on an indie show in an outlaw guy's hometown working with the promoter. That's what it looked like. Moxley looks like shit. MJF looks incredible. And whether it was Moxley would lay in the chops in, at one point, they were out on the floor. MJF spits a drink in Moxley's eyes. The crowd pops for it. MJF tries to take over, but Moxley won't sell anything because he's concentrating on getting himself over as a heel. And he probably had a bit of boo-boo job face going into this thing. And he wasn't concentrating on making MJF athletically, physically as a competitor on his level. He kept going for shoot holds like he's a noted Gracie family member. I never critique MJF. I'm going to do it now. MJF fired up at one point with a series of right jabs and right-footed stomps that he should never, ever, ever do again. Because it looked fucking hokey as goddamn, I don't know what. 
hey, it got me so frazzled I can't form a cogent simile. And, and that's that's a point where it got awkward because MJF was now doing babyface stuff. And even the people that had been cheering him, like, you know, Moses part of the Red Sea, it looks awkward when MJF is running the guy's head in the turnbuckle over and over, especially because Moxley takes him like shit. Or when he's doing the Dusty Rhodes fucking jabs. They, we don't want to see that from MJF. And he was put in that position, but also the jabs looked horrible. And it reminded me a little bit of also what The Rock used to do as a face, the type of like repeated punches and stomps that he would do. I, I think maybe if I can, they didn't could, look that good. <laughs> no, they didn't. And I know he was never praised for them either, but um, I think maybe they were trying to get across or get the crowd to think, okay, uh, MJF is totally a baby face. Now he's a good guy. Cause they were trying to, you know, shock them in the end, which again, to me, I'm watching it going, all right, I can tell by now where they're going from a million miles away. Not that that's a bad thing. Sometimes the obvious thing is the thing to do, but having Regal turn and then having MJF fool everybody and he's really the devil and all that stuff. But I'm watching it going, how is this going to play when the audience loves him? They're eating out of his hand. They are not going to turn on him when this turn happens. And I was right because as great as the match was, and as great as MJF was, at least, and getting it over and all that stuff, the audience still did not have the reaction that I think that they were hoping they were going to have. Well, if they thought they were going to get any other reaction, they were crazy. They got the exact reaction they were going to get. But And here's the thing. You mentioned that. Well, if they making him think he's a full-fledged babyface for the turn coming up. Does a full-fledged babyface throw rotten-looking jabs that the heel doesn't sell? And then takes back over on him, or does the if they wanted to portray in a a, a visual way MJF being the babyface, then wouldn't Moxley get on him and start punching him in the head, and MJF start bowing up and hulking up and giving that fucking oh, and Moxley backing up like oh, well they would if they wanted MJF to look like a big babyface, but that would also require Moxley to actually back up from somebody and fucking him to allow MJF to no sell some of his shit. Like he was no selling MJF. So that's why they didn't do that. But no, this was just a bad spot. And here's another thing, which was a tell, as they say, a tip. MJF going to fire the crowd up a few times here at the go home stretch. And I mentioned that he did that on that, that one promo that he did when he came back on television several weeks ago after the hiatus he took, and they were cheering everything he said, and he kept yelling and trying too hard and going to them and knocking them to make that, and they just cheered him more. He wasn't comfortable then being cheered, and he was trying too hard to get them to boo him, and they weren't going to do it anyway. Well, right in the closing part of this, MJF went to firing up the crowd several times, even if it wasn't like smiling baby face, cheer for me as like, ah, whatever. He was still trying to fire him up because he sensed, he heard at that point that this crowd ought to be hotter for that match or for his big match than they were at that point. 
and he was trying to artificially get him into it because he was uncomfortable about it. I could see it. But the thing is, Moxley didn't give him the match that those people would be hot for at that period of time. They liked MJF. They were waiting to see MJF win, but they weren't with every part of the match because it was fucking Moxley. And it's the same goddamn shit he always does. And he was actually not even doing it with as much oomph as he normally does because I think he had boo-boo job face. And then MJF goes, he goes out and he brings a table to ringside. And that took so much time that he gets back in the ring and Moxley hit a cutter. And Moxley did the stomps that looked like shit and probably hurt. And they teased falling off the apron onto the table. But then it was supposed to be that MJF was going to pick Moxley up for a tombstone pile driver on the apron, which he did do. But as Moxley was spinning up into it, his left foot slipped off the apron and Max had to power that son of a bitch up. Jesus Christ, I'm sure his balls were up in his watch pocket, but he got it. And then MJF sold the knee, which was brilliant. But then Moxley had to give MJF a pile driver off the apron through the table. And that wasn't the finish. Of course, MJF beat the county. And so at that point, Moxley, I think for the first time ever, actually kicked into high gear as Somas must have worn off. And he started working the leg with some fucking aggression. Not the neck that he just tried to break by pile driving a guy off the apron through a table to a concrete floor. Now he's working the leg immediately after that, but still it was something. And MJF sold the figure four great. And then they they did some more contrived fighting on the top turnbuckle and then Moxley hit a klutzy DDT off the top rope. It looked like it may have potentially killed MJF. And they did the yay boo in the middle. As they're going home, and now Moxley is the baby face in this, because not for the people. But again, if you notice, you say, well, they wanted to make MJF look like a big baby face. When's the last time the baby face lost the yay boo? Ever? Well, in this case, Moxley suddenly decides, well, I can't you lose the yay boo to MJF. So now suddenly he's the baby face, and he... Beats him down with the forearms and then hits the ropes and MJF pulls the referee into Moxley and both of them go down. Yeah, well, they did start to telegraph the turn a little bit towards the end of the match. Like I also noticed when when they did the spot where MJF is in the submission hold with the referee out and he's tapping. I mean, that's a total heel spot to do where, you know, he's tapping out as if he would have lost if the referee was only there to make the call. Well, so, you I know mean, what that you know what that was, don't you? Oh, yeah. That was some that was some of Mama Jobber's soothing salve. See, that's when that's when you tell Moxley, well, you're gonna do the job, but I tell you what, while the referee's down, you get to hold on him and he's gonna tap like Jose Greco. And so you really won. That's some of that Mama Jobber's soothing salve. It makes the fucking burn from the job go a little easier. But that's what happened. He knocks the referee down. Moxley gets the fuck. Well, MJF gets the ring. And Regal comes to ringside and tell him, put that down. And then Moxley gets a choke. 
and MJF kicks off the turnbuckle and their second ref comes in and counts it. Moxley gets choke again and they wipe out the second referee and the first referee comes back up. Moxley gets choke again and MJF taps, but the referee hadn't seen it yet. So Moxley goes to get the referee and Regal then pitches the Nucks into MJF and the people saw that and that's where they blew. Now it all becomes clear. And they were going to cheer MJF winning the title regardless because they wanted to see it. Because they wanted to see it. They want to see something new and fresh. And they knew they were going to get that eventually with Punk and MJF. And now there's no Punk, so let's just get it with MJF. I don't think there's been a clamor for Moxley to be the champion all these times. Interim champion, regular champion, whatever the fuck. But when Regal slipped the knucks in, at least that made part of the puzzle become clear. And boom, and now MJF wins. He's the champion. I thought MJF deserved a much better match. Moxley is just not up to something like this. And I don't think he had his heart in it. Uh, But now, again, people were talking about Twinkle Toes and Don Fallis as a Heenan-Bockwinkle combination. If they can keep Regal around, then this is your Heenan-Bockwinkle combination, MJF and fucking William Regal, and they can get some fucking heat. And eventually, if they... I know right now MJF is the bell of the ball. If they find a baby face that has the appeal of punk, they don't have one right now. Brian Danielson has a ton of appeal, but he's not a forceful enough personality to take charge of his own booking apparently and he's kind of twisted in the wind now but if they found a really popular baby face mjf can be a mega heel just like that because he's that good and they haven't ruined anything with making him a milk toast you know fucking nice guy i've i've realized i've done wrong i'm so sorry they haven't done that to him so that could still happen but First, they got to find a baby face anybody gives a shit about. Not the, not the goofiness of the, they like Kenny. They like Matt and Nick. I'm talking about a real baby face they look up to and respect and want to pay to see. Uh, but, think- um, well, I, I, just, just one more thing. You know, that's the thing. They were going to get this reaction regardless, but at least now if there's a path forward that gets Moxley out of the title picture and somebody else in it, then maybe they can stir something up here at the top of the card. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say that I think Regal with MJF is a great move. I think, you know, Regal, everything he touches is gold as far as I'm concerned. He, he, he's one of the greatest at pretty much everything, including comedy. I mean, people, he's one of the funniest. You wouldn't think he would be as funny as he is. He has the reputation yeah. for being such a great wrestler and a serious worker and all that stuff. But I mean, he, what I'm trying to say is he could do it all. But we haven't seen him in in this kind of a role in the longest time where he's become this kind of fatherly figure that that fans love and especially smart fans. He's this benevolent sort of guy that, you know, you shouldn't fuck with. But but he's so beloved that people forget what a great, great, great heel he is. And I think him and MJF could work magic together. Now, let me ask you, you may know about being the 
executive news director of the Wrestling News, you probably keep an eye on things like this. How long has William Regal been there? Um, when did he come in? It has not been that terribly long of a time. I, I want to say it was right around the time that they were having all those purges when, when Triple yes. H was kind of on the outs. So maybe the early part of this year. I mean, I could be completely off base, but I want to say the spring of this year. Okay, well, and that sounds about right. But I get where I'm going with that is, has anybody ever announced how long he signed for? Has anybody ever announced what length of contract he has? Because the one thing that's going to throw a monkey wrench into this is, is anybody out there crazy enough to think that Triple H, the first phone call that he made or tried to make when he got his position back again was to his right hand, one of his right hand men, William Regal. He's brought every, you had, we even said when they fired Regal, what the fuck? This is a sign. They're really kicking triple H in the nuts. I can't it with everybody else. Triple H brought back top dollar, the manatee in a sweatshirt. So you think he's not going to try to bring back Regal? So how long was the cave? If it was for a year, it may be almost up. If it's for two years, they've got time to run with this thing. Right. And no, no offense to road dog at all, but if triple H has brought him back, he most definitely is at least trying to bring Regal back. And I'm well, you, well I, I think the top dollar comparison pretty much <laughs> blew road dog out of the water. But, you know? but I, I say it because yeah, top dollar is in the ring, but, but road dog, he brought back in, in sort of a behind the scenes capacity. And I think with Regal, he has to be. I mean, those guys are have always been as thick as thieves. And I think that the reason that he didn't immediately go back has to speak to the fact that he signed up to some type of a deal yeah. that hasn't expired yet. And Regal is the kind of an honorable guy that's going to honor the deal. He's not going to try to get out of it or try and pull some kind of thing. Where, But I, but I would agree for sure that at this point, he's got to be just counting the days down. To, until until he can go back there, truly. Well, and I mean, and that's the thing is, cause we talked about at the time Regal came in. Why in the world is this guy not the commissioner slash authority figure slash promotional spokesperson on camera? Because that's what he does so well, and Tony does it so shittily. But also, I said, why is this guy not the head trainer of a new training program? Because, my God, he's had a hand in training some of the best talent of the last 20 years or whatever. But also, we made mention, who better, who better than Canyon? But who better than William Regal to know when contracts, when he came to AEW, he had knowledge when contracts for young talent in NXT and developmental, etc., when they'd be up and who those people were you need to be paying attention to and keeping an eye on and we say i wonder whether you know regal will be pissed off enough at what vince has done to him to fucking you know try to cause some shit well but then all of a sudden triple h takes back over now his friend is in charge again and now you have to think the other thing now triple h has got to go well there's william regal my bosom buddy and a guy who obviously knows enough about the wrestling business to know that he's made a drastic mistake in his, where he has accepted a job. 
And I want him back, but more importantly, he knows all these guys. He's been talking to them. They've spilled their guts to him. So now Triple H will know exactly what's going on. So uh, I don't know. Anyway, that was full gear, and that was the crowning of the new generational talent as champion in AEW and God, just like the acclaimed were let down by their opponents. MJF was let down by his opponent. Everybody on this program was let down by the booking of Tony Khan and his Adderall riddled fucking complete lack of a train of thought or attention to detail. And then they had a media scrum, and I know the people are waiting with bated breath, and I wondered what that smell was, to hear me talk about the media scrum and MJF giving us all a little heads up and a little hi, how are you? But we're going to do that on the drive through this week because, my God, this program has already been long enough. Brian Solomon, you got to report back into your parole officer, and we need to check on Brian last and see if he's made it out of the country yet. That's true. I think people have probably had enough of me by now, so, you know, I will... Well, I certainly have. I've had enough (laughs) for everybody. No, Solomon Grundy, you're my horse if you never win another race. I appreciate you stepping in and filling in while we were all in the lurch here this weekend. Thank you, sir. Uh, But anyway, and now that you have no friends because you have agreed with me on at least one topic over the last four hours, I will close up this edition of the Jim Cornette Experience Again, on the drive-thru, which we hope and believe with all our hearts and souls will feature Brian Last. We'll talk about the media scrum, MJF's comments, any fallout, as well as questions, songs, fun, and frivolity. But for this experience, for Brian Solomon and the rest of the Arcadian Vanguard minions and the missing great Brian Last, who we still love you, boy. Thank you. Fuck you. Bye-bye, everybody. Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch the show Meltzer says I'm in the key demo Meltzer says I'm in the key demo Jericho or 
Kenny 